alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. <laughs> Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus. You're gonna need a bigger boat. From the best-selling novel, Jaws, rated PG, maybe too intense for younger children. Ahoy, mateys, and welcome to The Pod and the Pendulum, the show dedicated to covering all horror movie franchises, one movie in one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, and I have as my first skipper tonight, the Gilligan to my captain, the Brody to my Quint. She is a senior contributor at Ghouls Magazine, your online resource for dissecting and discussing horror exclusively through the female perspective. Welcome back to the co-hosting chair, Ario Power Shab. Y'all know me, know how I earn a living. Can I be Quint, Mike? I want to be you Quint. Can you can totally be, be Quint. Okay, thanks. You can tell us we've been counting money all our lives. And... Uh, yeah, you say, talk about your hands. You have yeah. the speech in a place of prominence in your home, so I think you should be Quint. Yeah, yeah, I do. Fun fact for all the listeners. Yeah, I do yeah. have the Indianapolis speech in my main bathroom in my mm-hmm. home. So Excellent. Yeah. Joining us also as an invited guest, you've heard him way back when we discussed Leatherface. Uh, he is the co-host of the Men Who Like Men Who Like Movies podcast. I get that right? You did. Oh, my goodness. It's a mouthful. It certainly yes. is. But. We is greeting and salutations to Mr. Clayton Jones. Clayton, how are we? I am doing great. I'm so excited to talk about this. Welcome back, man. We're excited to have you back on. Uh, we think we're going to saddle your show partner with like the worst movie of the franchise. We think you nominated <laughs> him for that, so I need to reach out. Um, so good for you for hopping on a classic here. Yeah, I'm such a good friend. I was like, I'm going to take the good one and you can... Uh... You know, <laughs> he gets to talk about Michael Caine, at least, which is always yes. a good time. So but that's about the only thing that that has going for it. All right. We are here to kick off a new franchise and we are starting with a doozy of a picture. It's it a is big one, one. It's a big mm-hmm. one. Probably. This is probably the biggest film we've covered. Right. I mean, it must be. We yeah, covered some so. classics. It's got cross genre appeal. Yeah. And that's actually a question I'll ask when will we kind of go into our first impression. So I'll save that for just a minute here, I guess. It is one of the most recognizable films of all time. 
giving birth to the modern summer blockbuster, and changing the ways that movies were released. It traumatized a whole generation of people to the degree that many refused to step into a bathtub, let alone the ocean. We're here to talk about Jaws, the 1975 epic horror adventure from Steven Spielberg, starring Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfuss, Lorraine Gray, and Bruce the Shark. And to set the mood, we are all wearing Speedos while spooning some chum in between hot takes. Nothing better than a belly full of chum on a warm July day, right? This is going to be your ASMR is me just eating chum. Oh, yeah. It really is the best. I've got a big old bucket next to me. (laughs) Fun fact about me, I can't do ASMR. Oh, me either. It gets Mm -hmm. under my skin in such a way. It's really like grounds for divorce for me, where if like my wife puts it on too often when I'm around, I'm like, that's it. Like, you can cheat, you can lie, you can steal. Just don't listen to ASMR, please. (laughs) That's really funny. Um, Really quickly, I just want to give a quick shout out to some of the sources that we pulled from for this episode, because we wanted to give them some credit. Uh, First and foremost, the Jaws log from uh, writer Carl Gottlieb. It's basically a running account of his time on the set of Jaws, like writing it, filming it, and uh, there's a lot of great behind-the-scenes stories there. There's also the making of the movie Jaws by Edith Blake. She was a reporter on Martha's Vineyard, and her book is great because it's less about the Hollywood mechanisms in Jaws and more about how the movie impacted the locals and all the locals that worked on it. So there's some phenomenal stories there. Um, There's also Just When You Thought It Was Safe, a Jaws companion by uh, Peter Jankowitz, which is a phenomenal quick and easy read, especially when we get into the sequels, Uh, and a pair of documentaries, The Making of Jaws and The Shark is Still Working, both of which are included on the Blu-ray. The Making of Jaws in particular is outstanding. It gets all the main principles. Uh, It's kind of like a, um, his name was Jason, or like the Elm Street documentary, where you just get like a lot of talking heads, but you get like really cool stories and anecdotes and details from everybody involved so just wanted to give a shout out to that like if you kind of like what we do here this week and want more jaws i would point you in those directions so this was my initial question we kind of touched on it briefly is there another blockbuster movie that is like this well made and when we think of like Hollywood blockbusters now in particular, they can be really fun and they're well crafted. But is there anything that is like is expertly made as a piece of film as Jaws is? I would say I no. Was... Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to think of one. I was thinking of is Jurassic Park a blockbuster? No, oh, no, yeah, absolutely. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, I that think movie that's was... really well made. Mm-hmm. That holds up like like nothing, like really well. It does. They yeah. both hold up very well. And mm-hmm. on this rewatch, I was just like, God, Jaws is really a perfect movie. Mm-hmm. And Jurassic Park is amazing, but I would I would say Jaws edges edges it out a little bit. Abso- oh, absolutely, I agree with that. Yeah, Jaws mm-hmm. feels like a blockbuster that isn't necessarily meant to be a blockbuster. Like in a lot of ways, it's Mm -hmm. a really small picture where Jurassic Park is like just epic in scale. 
Uh, but that don't hold that against it. I mean, the only other thing I could think of was like T2, like Terminator 2 mm-hmm. from Cameron. Mm-hmm. It's another like inc- incredibly well made. You know, I think I think of like Endgame and uh, even Star Wars. Like as much as I love Star Wars, I wouldn't argue that it's an incredibly well made film. Like yeah. the acting is really all over the map. Um, the effects were at times like pretty janky. The dialogue is something else, and yet it is so much better than the sum of its parts. Where Jaws like fits in perfect with like that kind of new Hollywood type of filmmaking. So what are our first impressions? I guess, you know, I think it's usually it's fascinating when we cover a movie where we assume like everyone's going to be five stars, no notes, and then the opinions cover a pretty wide range. But I think we might all be on the five stars, no notes bandwagon here. But what was the first time like we remember watching this movie and have our like thoughts on it evolved over time and Clayton as our guest why don't you kick things off well I can't remember Jaws really not being in my life um I saw it very young and loved it it frightened me it thrilled me I'd never really seen anything like it I was one of those kids I loved dinosaurs reptiles sharks I had all those little you know books with all the different you know kinds of them and stuff and it just fascinated me and it's a really good movie I had to love it um since then I've watched this (laughs) I don't know how many times every single format from VHS to 4k to I watched it in theaters in Boise a couple years ago and it had that IMAX re-release and that was the first time I'd seen it on the big screen if I had known Rachel back at the time I would have uh made her go with me since I was out there but yeah it's amazing and yeah it's just it's wonderful I attempted to read the book as a kid and uh couldn't get past Chrissy's death scene it um was very traumatic for me and I never went back and tried to read it even though I'm sure I can handle it now at the ripe old age of 34 um I did listen to the cover to credits episode about it that compared the book and the movie and from what I heard uh, I feel like I was okay in skipping the book though yeah it's the rare case like when people say like oh the book is always better than the movie like this is decidedly not the case when it comes with the book here not that it's a bad read but I think we'll get into it like how much better the movie is and what they took from the book and removed from the book to really streamline things mm-hmm. So this is just a piece that you've been with like your whole life. And I think that's the case for a lot of folks. Like I don't remember a time when Jaws like wasn't a part of like. Yeah, I wish I could remember the first time I'd seen it, but Mm -hmm. it just it's always been there. I feel like I was just born and it was in my brain. Mm -hmm. Your dad was a shark. And (laughs) (laughs) yeah, just remember, just remember like him bringing you home wrapped in his fin. And you just remember that from day one. Ario, how about yourself? Um, Well, I don't remember the first time I saw it either, but differently than Clayton, because it wasn't always there. Like, it's a horror movie I saw later. So middle school or high school, I think. But I, I really don't remember. I wish I could remember. It probably was, like, on in the background in a way I didn't fully appreciate. And then, like, I rewatched it more and more, and I was like, oh, I really love this. And so um, 
like a lot of horror fans, I watch it every 4th of July. I It's a movie that I know really well now, so I don't mind if I kind of like, you know, 4th of July, if you've been like drinking and in the sun all day, I can go home, put on Jaws and just kind of relax. And if I fall asleep for a second, it's like not a big deal. Um, and I, I watched it a lot, especially during covid the parallels are obvious, so I won't spend much time on that. But um, it was definitely a comfort watch over the last several years. And it just, it, there's no like diminishing returns. It's always just as perfect as it's ever been. I agree. I think it's a near perfect movie. And I like that idea of like watching it and kind of drifting off to sleep, just kind of putting it on and having it on in the background. Because it's a great hang movie. Like these are characters mm-hmm. that you enjoy kind of like spending some time with and there are a lot of like very quiet moments in this movie where it is easy to drift off it's this is also just one of those movies that like it's been around for as long as i can remember um i remember this movie and the sequel being on constant rotation as like the sunday night movie of the week movies growing up when you had like three networks and the uhf channels and that was it so it seemed like every other week either jaws and jaws 2 were what was playing especially in the summertime and it got to the point where i watched the two of them so much that i would mix them up inside of my brain (laughs) it would be hard to kind of disentangle them i do think that after childhood I don't remember like revisiting Jaws until Universal released it for the first time in like the year 2000 when they had like their first initial DVD press of it. So it had been a solid dozen or so years since I had watched it. I did read like the novel just ahead of getting with the Blu-ray and we'll definitely talk about some of the differences that are there. It's since become like an absolutely yearly revisit especially around the fourth of july weekend to me this movie is like the holiday movie when it comes to the fourth of july for obvious reasons like it's such a great symbol of summer like it takes place right around the fourth of july it's right on like the beaches of martha's vineyard which i'm someone who really enjoys spending a lot of time out at cape cod so to me it's just like the perfect movie to throw around for that time the big thing i remember growing up is not so much the movie itself but like all the merchandising for it like the sticker books the t-shirts the video games the lunch boxes the toys it's something that like i just remember my cousins having so much gear all around jaws like all the little the comic books and books you could read about it so even more than the movie like just going through like the tops trading cards of jaws would be something that i would remember like having a bunch of those growing up as a kid with like photos from the movie and then like fun factoids or snippets of scenes on like the back of the cards and it's funny like a couple years later star wars is going to come out and you have to think lucas took a the idea from Jaws in terms of how do we merchandise this movie and, and Lucas famously signed away like he basically got a huge percentage of the toy rights for Star Wars and that is more than the movie the toys are what made Lucas like a billionaire and allowed him to kind of finance the series on his own after that so I think if, Jaws was the first movie to do that 
if George Lucas still has those toy rights, he's making bank. I was at Target last night and happened to walk down the toy aisle, and I had no idea Legos were so expensive, and there was this Lego set that was literally just the Millennium Falcon by itself. That's all it was. And it was $180 just for... I was just like, yeah. Jesus. It's like your whole Christmas present, kid. You can mm-hmm. build this one toy and look at it. Never take it apart. Shocked. Mm-hmm. Absolutely shocked. I, I wonder how many of those are sold and like a third of the way built with pieces that are scattered throughout. Like, Jammed pieces. in someone's foot. Yeah. <laughs> pieces just like under couch cushions and sofas and behind litter boxes everywhere. So, <laughs> Yeah. It's crazy how much more expensive and when we talk about how much money this movie made like we'll definitely talk about that like what just movie tickets alone like what they went for back then and how much money how many people had to see this movie in order for it to make the kind of money that it did it's kind of nuts yeah so all right let's talk a little bit about the background of this movie uh it's really it's a fascinating discussion because the behind the scenes drama is about as fascinating and known as the movie itself at this point. By all accounts, it's an absolutely disastrous shoot and it's a miracle that the movie was made at all and it's watchable, let alone that it's an iconic masterpiece. Like that that came out of the other end of everything is pretty amazing. So before we can really talk about the movie itself, we got to talk a little bit about Peter Benchley, the author of Jaws. He was a journalist. He had done a lot of environmental writing. He was looking to write his first novel, and he had presented a 12-page outline to his publisher and of the story of Jaws. And based on that outline, he was given about a grand up front and 2500 for the first four chapters, another 3500 bucks after completion. So not a lot of money for one of the biggest money makers of all time. But he is banking on the paperback rights. He's like, I won't make a lot for this, but when it goes paperback, I am going to cash in in a big way, which is what he did. He turns the first draft in. The word of mouth is very strong, and the publishers know like they have a pretty big hit on their hands. When it comes to negotiating those paperback rights, which is where you get like back in the 70s and 80s, you would have the book clubs and book of the month promotions. You would have like the wire racks at your local grocery shop and pharmacy filled with all the bestsellers, what we would call like the airport lounge novels now. Like you just had those in every store in the country back then. They're filled with that's where these books are going to go. And that's the idea, like get the book there. Uh, he nets about $575,000 for the paperback rights uh, from Doubleday. So he cashes in in a pretty massive way. In the meantime, producing partners like Richard Zanuck and David Brown, they always have their ear to the ground for the next, like what's going to be the next surefire bestseller that we can acquire the film rights to. Zanuck and Brown were executive producers on The Sting, which was a huge commercial and award success. They had served producers on tidy little indie films like Sound of Music, The French mm-hmm. Connection, Never Patton. Heard of them. Yeah, it's <laughs> you know, Patton, 
these little titles, you're right, that we would never hurt, hear yeah, of, right? No. They're kind of like the Francis Ha of their day, like like the little indies that could make it. <laughs> um, they were line producers on these movies, and then they were stepping up. Uh, the Sting, I think, might have been the first time they served as executive producers, which is where you make the real money. Um, they had produced a, a little-known director's first feature film, Sugarland Express by Steven Spielberg. Um, he, at that point, had to cut his bones on television shows, like I think Night Galleries, and uh, he did a great episode of Columbo, uh, the first episode of the first season. Uh, oh, fantastic really, Columbo episode. Yeah, the one with the authors in it. Like, it's a fantastic little little app i would strive i didn't i didn't know he directed it when we watched it it's like directed by steven spielberg and i'm like holy shit that's did a fun not fact know. It's, i know you love columbo who did love columbo columbo absolutely rules um duel was his first real success he had made this for television in america it's a Similar to Jaws, and you have this massive being hunting down men, uh, in this case, like Dennis Weaver, where he goes toe-to-toe with an 18-wheel truck. Um, that movie was so successful that it was actually recut for European audiences and released theatrically. That sounds familiar. Duel? I'm sure I've never seen it. I, I would am seek it out. 150% sure I've never seen it, and also I've never oh. heard of this one. Definitely seek it out. It's one of those movies that gets talked about a lot with Spielberg. Like, it's the movie he did before Jaws was made for TV. It's awesome. Like, I picked and a up... truck? It's like a sentient truck? It's... No, no. It's a, just an asshole driving the truck. Essentially, the dude... So it's like Joyride. Yeah, that's exactly it. it. It What it ends up being is this guy was tailgating, like, Dennis Weaver's character... Weaver or no Weaver I think cuts him off in the beginning of the movie and then the guy is like fuck you and absolutely haunts this dude everywhere he goes it is it's really tense like for a 90 minute made for tv movie that really focuses on one guy for like 85 percent of the runtime it's super intense I would highly recommend you seek it out yeah, um, can you find it? At, oh like, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Like it's every you can definitely oh, yeah. rent it online. For I got sure. it as part of like the Blu-ray collection that Universal released with a bunch of Spielberg's work up through the Lost World, I think is the last movie that's included. And Duel is part of it, Jaws is part of it. It looks fantastic. It was written by Richard Matheson, a famous horror and sci-fi writer. So it's based on his short Writer story. Of, and then he did the somewhere script. in time, I believe. Mm-hmm. So it's something I would strongly recommend. You can get the Blu-ray for nine dollars. I'm just gonna Do buy this. that. Just buy it. It's, yeah. You can't take a look. You might find. I think I got the Spielberg Blu-ray collection for like twenty bucks. Like sometimes you can okay. find it super super cheap too and that would be i'm super thing. excited i've never yeah. i don't think i've heard of this maybe i have oh i smell a patreon episode coming up then Ooh. once we once you ordered and watch it maybe we do like a fun little commentary and a little watch Let's do along it. for it um all right so they were high on spielberg because he had also just directed his first theatrical feature uh the sugarland express which is a little kind of uh crime thriller 
Um, it was a modest success in that it you know, recouped its budget and then made a few bucks. It was a critical darling, but nothing that suggested that Spielberg was going to go on to become Spielberg. But he was definitely a director that Brown uh, and Zanuck had their eye on and wanted to nurture along their way. Yeah. So David Brown has like this inside track on up and coming books that might great make for great for great movie adaptations because his wife is Helen Gurley Brown. She is the editor at Cosmopolitan at the time. Uh, David's own roots are in publishing. He was a journalist that worked up to becoming a managing editor at Cosmo himself at one point. But his wife is getting all of these books for review at Cosmo, and she has a foot in the literary world, so she's able to kind of filter things to, through David and say, like, you might want to keep your eye out on this one. Like, there's a really good buzz behind the scenes before it's even published. Because that's the thing. Like, once this thing is released and and it's out in the world, like once the novel of Jaws comes out, like Benchley is going to have his pick of studios into uh, make a deal with. So they're trying to sign him before the movie or sorry, before the book even gets released. So eventually Brown and Zonic, they sign the rights to produce Jaws for $250,000. And that was for like included the bait salary plus like writing a draft of the script as well. And they hire Benchley to write at least two drafts of the script so he can adapt his own work for the screen. Uh, fun fact about Zanuck and Brown, like they're massively successful at Universal. In 1979, they jumped ship for Warner Brothers. Uh, I'm sorry, for 20th Century Fox. And they leave there after like one of 12 movies. They presented like we should do this for a motion picture. Only one of the dozen movies they or ideas they present gets turned into a movie. Mm -hmm. The final straw was the studio shelving their adaptation of Eric Van Lustbuster's novel, The Ninja, which they had spent almost a million dollars on to get the rights to. And they wanted to tap John Carpenter direct it. And 20th Century Fox is, eh, we're, no thanks. And they leave. It's pretty acrimonious. You can find some articles um, online about how pissed off they were at 20th Century Fox when they left. So... Man, um, leaving money on the table. Leaving some cash. And again, that would have been an early, like, post-Halloween movie for Carpenter. He would go on to do Escape from New York. And mm -hmm. if you want to know more about that, you can go to our archives from June. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> so they got to find a director. Uh, Steven Spielberg is not the first choice. They want John Sturgis to direct Jaws because he had at least made one ocean-based drama with his adaptation of The Old Man in the Sea in 1958. And he had done a pair of like massively expensive uh, and expansive hits for the studios. He had the, was the director behind The Magnificent Seven and The Great Escape, which to me would probably mean you're getting like Steve McQueen and Charles Bronson and Jaws, if John Sturgis says imagine? yes. Oh my God. That's some parallel <laughs> universe that does exist. Yes. After, yeah. And the multiverse is a version of Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> don't hate it, but it's a massively different movie, right? I mean, oh, yeah. The Great Escape, <laughs> The Magnificent Seven. I don't think you're getting that small kind of personal drama that Jaws offers. Mm -hmm. I think you're going no. big from the get go. Um, Richard, uh, sorry, Rick Richards is offered the job. 
Um, but he kept calling the shark a whale during the pre-production lunch meeting with Zanuck and Brown. Oh, boy. And, you know, after lunch, like, Brown looks at Zanuck and he's like, he's out. Like, they basically turn this guy away at this point because they're like, he doesn't even know what the fucking creature is. How do you um, fuck that up? It pretty is not easily. Confusing. It's, yeah, they're very Have different. Have you been animals. on Twitter, Ariel? People are dumb. <laughs> I yes. guess. I, I guess. feel like people were like overall smarter in the 70s in some ways like i think that we have a very fair dumber, <laughs> well we, we don't know culture. that they didn't have twitter so maybe they just weren't True. showing their asses all the yeah time. <laughs> but at the very least they had the emotional intelligence not to show their asses all the time i don't yes. know you're probably Still, right how do you I, fuck that up calling a shark a whale Those i don't know pretty different anyway well, this whatever. guy he's i'm on the side of the orcas same he's, i want to give them money <laughs> buy merch you know He's kind of the Don Draper of his day, uh, Richards. Hmm. Like he wasn't necessarily like a, a, a studio director at that time. He was a commercial director that his clients included like Polaroid, Coca-Cola, Volkswagen, Hertz, Pepsi. So he did Coke and Pepsi were his commercials. Uh, it's really that's bad on like, red and black. You don't that's want to cut exactly against yourself. it. You know. Um, his directing career is pretty brief, but like it's well thought of. Like he is behind the camera for a movie called Rafferty and the Gold Dust Twins, Farewell My Lovely, and uh, Culpepper Cattle Company in 1972, which is what got him consideration. I have never seen any of these movies, no. but I hear they're well regarded. Uh, me either, but I miss when movies had titles like Farewell My Lovely. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to think of like a. Now it's just, what's like the last great funky title we've had? We're all going to the World's Fair. Yeah, yeah. I wish that movie was better. Same. I really like it. Yeah, a lot really of people really, really, like really do. A lot of people. I like didn't understand the hype when I saw it. I was like, really? I'm wanting to really love it. I yeah. try. You know how that goes. Yeah. What well, do you know? All right, Steven Spielberg, who did not make We Are All Going to the World's Fair. Um, he gets the job. I guess he stole a copy of the book from Universal's offices. They had a bunch of the blank pages, and he's like, oh, what's this? And he, like, swipes it, thinking, like, is it a movie about, like, a crazy dentist? And he absolutely <laughs> loved the movie. He lobbies for and he gets the job. But there's still no official writer yet. For the movie now they've got their director they're waiting on Benchley's script and he turns in the first draft Peter Benchley it follows the book pretty closely and Brown and Zanuck want something a little bit different what they call like an A to Z adventure story do you guys know what that means I have not no. heard that term I hadn't either until kind of reading up but it basically means trimming all of the fat from the book where if there's something that doesn't propel the plot or the action forward, they want to cut it out. So when we talk about the differences between the book and the movie, um, we'll discuss some of those things that they cut, they cut out. I guess we'll just kind of throw them in right here. The major differences between Jaws the novel and Jaws the movie. Number one, the reason why Mayor Vaughn wants, doesn't want to close the beaches isn't so much about the ta town's economic prospects so much as he owes the mafia a lot of money. 
And if he <laughs> closes the beaches, he will not get the chance to really kind of like skim from the top of the profits the summer people bring in mm-hmm. in order to get that money. So it's really more of a personal motivation. Um, Hooper is the younger brother of a, a man that uh, Brody's wife once dated. And Brody's wife goes on to have a very torrid affair with Hooper right under his nose. And I think Hooper's kind of portrayed as like a lot more cynical, paunchy, um, just like not what you envision when you watch Jaws. So, you know, Brody like basically finds out about the affair and almost kills Hooper with his bare hands, like on the deck of the ship Orca before oh. they sail out. So some tension Hooper does not survive the, his time in the shark cage. He gets eaten. It's another pretty big difference mm-hmm. and a big, I think thematic and smart choice that Spielberg makes besides all of those things is in the book, every night on the Orca, They go back into shore and they go home, they sleep in their own beds and they're done for the day. And Spielberg is like, well, that is dramatically inert. Like, that's not a good idea whatsoever. Uh, We need to keep them out there. That's much more. Though as soon as you can see land, it's like, well, just go back. Um, Mm -hmm. The final difference is the shark just kind of dies. Like it has been shot at, it been harpooned. Brody is the last man standing once again. He is resigned to his fate. He's like, well, I guess this is where I get eaten. And as the shark approaches him, it just dies and then drifts into the bottom of the sea. And that's convenient for him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very convenient and a very kind of anticlimactic ending. And it actually was a source of great tension between Spielberg and Benchley, like when they would talk about the movie and Spielberg would tell him his ending, Benchley is like, well, that's stupid. Like, that's not going to work. And Spielberg's like, it's going to work for a fucking movie. All right. Like, well, that's the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they're each an expert in their craft. So, like, let the man cook. Right. Uh, so, as far and- as being experts in their craft, I heard some of the actual excerpts from uh, that affair storyline on covered credits talking about the book and that is some of those classic men writing about women Mm -hmm. uh things Mm. you would see it is yeah she boobed boobily basically basically yes bosoms bosoms were heaving um That would be a great name for a, like a romantic movie. Bosoms were heaving. Maybe not a great name, but it would be a name. For it, a it could be a name. Yeah, yes. could be a name. Um, didn't have to be lady bosoms. Like men can have bosoms as well. So it's twenty twenty three. Anyone yeah. can have bosoms. Absolutely. Yeah. Happy Pride. Um, I'll say this: like Benchley, like later on would say, like, all right, Spielberg's a genius. Like, what do I know? Like he was absolutely right to do what he did um and benchley was like a very well-respected writer not just as a novelist but as like as someone who would go on to write uh about oceanography of ography specifically he would write in a number of publications so there are definitely some questionable things about jaws the novel but there's a reason it sold millions of of it is a page turner like it is a pretty those changes aside it's a pretty solid read uh, i just think the book is much better so anyway after reading benchley's script 
Spielberg writes his own draft of it more as an exercise to see if he could figure out where he wanted the movie to go. And in his version, Quint is introduced at a movie theater in a scene like very reminiscent of Cape Fear, where Quint is watching uh, Gregory Peck in Moby Dick, and he's just bellowing with laughter in this super obnoxious way to the point where like everybody gets up and leaves a theater and it's just Quint howling at how ridiculous the Moby Dick movie is. And Spielberg approached Gregory Peck who had the rights to the movie. I uh, said, can we use this in Jaws? And Peck declined. He's like, you know, I really don't like this movie very much. It's not one of my best works and feels like I'm being made fun of here. So I'm going to have to decline. He didn't want to see himself lampooned. So after Spielberg does his draft, which again, he says is more of an exercise, uh, Howard Sackler is brought upon by, uh, I think, Brown specifically. He was an award-winning playwright and screenwriter, best known for The Great White Hope, and he takes a run of the script. He's got a short window he can actually work on it, so he tells him, like, look, like I know you're not going to use this as your final draft. Just take my name off it. I'm happy to write some ideas down. Um, Spielberg says, while it wasn't like a complete draft, it definitely broke the back of the story. He's like, okay, once I read Sackler's script or his ideas, I could figure out here's how we're going to make this movie. And it's Sackler that is given credit for the idea of like Quint having the Indianapolis speech. I don't know if he wrote the actual speech or a draft of it, but in his version, he's like, Quint was a member of the USS Indianapolis. He's going to talk about his experience there. So he gets that initial credit. Um, it, but still, no script. So Brown and Zanuck, they're scrambling for a writer, and they have another massive obstacle. They needed to finish the principal photography for Jaws by the end of June, and it's already like February 1974. Mm. They, have, they have a June 30th deadline. I'm and stressed. Are they going to make it? I don't know. We don't know if this movie gets made. Um, <laughs> tune in next week when we talk about a different movie because Jaws never came out. Um, there's a, a couple of reasons. One, it's economics. Like by early end of June, early July, the seasonal rates kick in. Like they're going to shoot in Martha's Vineyard. And instead of being 15 bucks a night for a hotel room, which like, wow, $15 a night, 15 bucks won't get you a mint on your pillow at Martha's Vineyard at this mm-hmm. point. Um, not only do they ha- worry about like the rate basically tripling to stay in the vineyard, but also there's the looming Screen Actors Guild strike. And Universal said, we're not going to go forward with any movie that can't be completed by June 30th because they didn't they didn't know if they would have the actors. They didn't know if they could do the promotion. So they needed to get something written quick. Uh, Spielberg had tapped his friend Carl Gottlieb for the role of Harry Meadows, the newspaperman in Amity. And he's like, well, he's a writer. He could do it. And they hire Carl Gottlieb to write the script for Jaws. They're writing process the making of of jaws the creative process it sounds this is where it sounds lovely and tell me what you think of this so most of the cast and crew like they're staying in hotels in martha's vineyard spielberg gottlieb uh verna fields and a few others have their own house right on the water 
on the vineyard. It's got a roaring fireplace. It comes with a live-in maid named uh, Adele, who or Adele, who was like, according to Gottlieb and the Jaws log, like everybody put on at least 10 pounds because her cooking was so great. Um, they would have like 16 millimeter films like shipped in from the studio to unwind to at night. And every night, like Gottlieb would just like type away in his little corner on the typewriter while a fire was roaring. And they just basically wrote the movie on the fly. Like, all right, here are your pages for the next few days. Here you go. And then he would write and rewrite upcoming things while Spielberg would kind of like lounge about or he and Fields would try to like cut uh, early scenes of the movie. And it sounds sounds like a really nice way to make a movie. Yeah, it sounds like a party. Yeah, but like a relaxing not micromanaged party. to death like everything oh. is now. I mean, give me the uh, a woman that just comes over and makes like French pastry desserts, yes, you know, mm-hmm. while I watch like sixteen millimeter films of Spartacus, you know, by the fire, you know, shooting. God, oh, man. especially on yes. somewhere like the vineyard. So that was probably the only thing that went very well. In ter- it was comfortable for these guys because everything else is a hellscape when it comes mm-hmm. to the shooting. Meanwhile, like the rest of the cast and crew, they're running around the island. Everybody's hooking up with everybody. Like every crew member, like they're all in their young early 20s. All of the young women that are back on the island and like working as like bar staff and waitresses and in the hotels, like it's basically a giant like hookup factory for the whole summer. Um, oh, 70s. Yeah. For them. Richard Dreyfus comes on on the set and he at first he would go to Spielberg's house for dinner every night like for for the first week and then he realizes like I'm Richard Dreyfus I was just in American Graffiti and uh, there's a lot of available women on the island and I think the way Gottlieb puts it in the Jaws log is like he was never like want for company and he never was with like the same person twice basically like Dreyfus has a really good so somewhere in the vineyard there's probably like a half dozen now 50 year old kind of like nebbish kids that have no idea (laughs) who their dad is because i'm sure that protection was not used anyway no jaws the thirstiest movie on the ocean perhaps so yeah we mentioned spielberg wants to shoot on the ocean which had not been done before uh, he was adamant that Jaws looks better than these other ocean-based films because they always shoot on a tank. And in his eyes, they look ridiculous. They look fake. Um, why do you folks think that like filming on the water was so rare? Like, Why do people not do this? <laughs> hmm. Let's go. The horrors of the sea... Uh, the expensive equipment, the know-how to be on the water, uh, seasickness. I could go on. It sounds oh, like do. a bad time. No controlled you know, environment at yeah. all. Just oh. things like anchoring your ship down and then having mm-hmm. it slightly drift, and now you're out of focus. You're out of shot. Getting the light right, getting the mm-hmm. sound right. Nightmare. Having sailboats go by so you want to look completely Mm -hmm. alone on this ocean and Dreyfus tells stories of how like 
Spielberg would do calculations like they would set up their shot and all of a sudden you're like, oh, great. There's like a sailboat because they're shooting in wide panamorph mm-hmm. lenses. And oh, that boat's in the frame. OK, do we like re-anchor everything, change our positions and shoot that way? How much time will that take versus how much time will it take for the boat to be out of frame? So they typically would wait for the boat to sail by and just cross their fingers that another one wouldn't. It was like it was like that scene in Wayne's World where they're playing street hockey and they're like yelling car and game on. It's like the <laughs> slowest version of that game ever. That's hilarious. Okay. No, it sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. just like you said, like the the getting seasick, like the bumpiness, trying to keep mm-hmm. the cameras steady. The weather would change at a dime. Like you would be out there all of a sudden, you would get massive storms. Uh, it was, there's a reason why nobody shot on the, and especially the vineyard and the Cape, like those Atlantic, those are really choppy waters. At oh, one yeah. point, Spielberg is like, well, can we move production down to like the Bahamas where it is, you know, like the waters are a lot more tranquil at least. And Brown and Zanuck are like, nope, like you, we've already sunk enough money into this. Like we're not going to sink anymore just to move the whole picture at this point. Aren't going to do it. I just um, love all those movies that have famously horrible productions that were supposed to be massive failures and now are just absolutely iconic. Mm-hmm. It seems like everybody like thought it, like... Titanic was going to fail. Gone with the Wind should not have worked. And they're the yeah. most recognizable movies ever. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And then there are those movies that like have a troubled history and they're a train wreck and they go on to be like awful movies. So they're an actual yeah. train wreck. It's fun when it turns so. out to be just yeah. wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this did. This is the rare case where it really, really did. And my God, it, now it's easy for me to say, but seems worth it that they shot on the ocean because it looks oh. amazing. Mm-hmm. It does. It God, does. I miss on-location shooting. Think about like a movie, like the Marvel movies, which is, or even like I love Star Wars, but you go and you watch the prequels and you go and you watch a lot of the Disney television productions and you don't have like tangible sets you have green screens and it just pulls you right out of it the shots don't have weight Mm -hmm. when it's all a green screen i don't know how else to describe it i didn't go to film school Mm -hmm. but it feels like the shots don't have enough weight yeah and it's not a good thing when your movie can take place anywhere right like when you look at a lot of modern filmmaking there's no character to the locations anymore. So you can kind of transpose that movie to any physical location. Whereas like something like this, and we're going to talk about the vineyard right now. Like it has such a specific look and feel to it in mm-hmm. such a specific characterization to it that it can only take place there. And that's something that the later Jaws movies definitely lose and we'll talk about that in a couple weeks when we come back with jaws 2 but when they move production off the vineyard to uh pensacola i think the movie definitely it loses something so the vineyard is where they shoot um the 
locals fill a lot of the small roles in Jaws. Like, so most of the character actors you see here, like outside of your main three principals, plus uh, Lorraine Gary and Marie Vaughn, almost everybody else in this movie is from the island. So like the town, the town hall meeting scene, those are actual selectmen from Edgartown in their roles. So like they were Bad Hat Harry. Someone looked at Bad Hat Harry and said, I want you to represent our local governance. Uh, that is what was going on. Um, Gottlieb gets the dialogue for Quint directly from a local fisherman. I put the wrong name here in my notes, but I believe it's Craig Kingsbury. Um Craig Kingsbury plays Ben Crenshaw in the movie and they just start following him around. And he's just like salty, foul-mouthed fisherman from Montuck who would just regale the crew with basically many tales of bullshit that Robert Shaw would go on to repeat on the set. And everybody would look at him like the locals would be like, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. Um, <laughs> upon seeing the movie with her daughter, uh, Kingsbury's wife said, God bless Spielberg. He's a genius. They have finally found a use for your father's empty head. Like that is. <laughs> so a lot of Quint's dialogue that you hear is, is Kingsbury. And he is the, he's the fisherman that if you don't know, who he is, he's the one that greets Hooper when he's on the deck, like, well, hello there yourself. And he's the one that is giving that little, talk on the boat like as everybody's going into the bay and he's like swearing at all the other uh sailors that aren't from the area and like you can tell like not a word of that is scripted that is just him kind <laughs> yeah. of running off um mrs kittner was played by a local acting coach uh, lee fiero who says like for the 30 years following the release of jaws she had slapped thousands of young men in their face like men would come up to her and be like can you please slap me and i think she kind of retired from doing that around like the mid 2000s she uh, i never get away. tired of doing that <laughs> no well she was like a lot i mean she passed away in 2020 at the uh, um early days of COVID from cope complications of it but she was like 97 when she passed away I don't know how much slapping I'm going to be able to do when I'm like 75 years old. Man, the older I get, the more I want to slap somebody. So I don't know. Right. The the I mind hope she is was charging. I hope she was like, "I'll slap you if you give me five dollars." Would that be legal? I don't see why not. Hmm. I mean, you could be getting it's into the some gray sticky, area of sex it's work. Gray area. You know. Yeah. I don't know, man. I don't. Good know. for her. Yeah. I, I say good for her as well. What a Comic-Con, like a Jaws Fest experience. Like, you go to the booth, get slapped by Mrs. Kittner. Like, that would be <laughs> Well, yeah, incredible. Kane Hodder will choke you, but you have not to meet anymore. <laughs> really? Will really. I Literally, on Twitter this morning, somebody posted a uh, mask that he had signed, and they made a comment about how he had just stopped uh, doing it. Wild. Hmm. All right. So Where I think as, dream? Yeah, yeah, as I you get older, you could hire Kane Hodder to be in your low budget indie horror movie and he would choke you in that. 
Okay. So, All right. Yeah. Back on so the we need there a, you go. We need a patron level where people executive <laughs> become executive producers for an indie horror movie for us. And patrons, this is where your money goes. This is where it goes. <laughs> getting Ariel choked by Kane Hodder. Let's all um, come together for the cause. Hopefully. Sorry. Well, that's worthwhile. It's all right. That would be quite the cause at that point. But part of the reason like the vineyard is special is it's so distinct looking. There are no McDonald's to this day on Martha's Vineyard. There's no Starbucks. There's really? no CVS pharmacies. Yeah, I dug up here. They actually passed an ordinance like in the late 70s when developer wanted to put a McDonald's on the island. And a group of the islanders formed what's called the No Mac Committee. It was about 3,000 full and part-time residents that fought to keep out McDonald's specifically, but chain stores in general, because they didn't want to change the look and the feel of the island. So in a lot of ways, like you can go there now, and a lot of what you saw in Jaws is relatively untouched. You can still see it as it was. One thing that is taken down is Quint's workshop. Like they built that for the movie. They went through a ton of trouble trying to get this thing built because of local ordinances. And just as they're building it, another guy comes up and says, you don't have a permit for that. They're like, how long will that take? Uh, about six months. Like, what yeah. if we go ahead and build it anyway? He's like, well, we would tell you to take it down. Well, how long will it take you to get us to get legal authority to do that? About six weeks done so they build it and then basically tear it down but they had to post like a hundred thousand dollar bond to build that set and to the degree that like the town wanted to keep it up they're like can we actually this looks really cool it would be a great tourist attraction and they were reminded by their local government like no there's an ordinance that says it has to come down so um that's not that unusual i spent my teenage years in mm -hmm. south florida and uh where I lived in Hope Sound was right off of Jupiter Island, which is where uh, a lot of the richest families in America have have uh, homes. And they have kept that community pristine. Like, I mean, I remember when they first got a Wendy's and it was like crazy because they had wanted everything to stay, you know, like a small little village where they go for their vacations. And yeah, like there's the closest Walmart's like 30 minutes away. It's crazy. Yeah, they were probably pissed when that Wendy's went up, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. My wife's, she's from like a small coastal town in the UK. And like, it was a big deal when a McDonald's went in. Like a lot of the residents were pissed off about it. They're like, this is going to kind of ruin some of the character of, of the area. Like we don't want people. And it has definitely caused like a traffic nightmare in that area. Um, I have a brief excerpt from an article from the New York Times um, dated January 4th, 1979, Martha's Vineyard Repulses Big Mac. Would any of you care to read it? It's the bottom of page five of the notes. Yeah, I'll go for it. I'm uh, finding it. Martha's Vineyard beat back its first Big Mac attack last night. But how long this island of passionate resistance to the last half of the 20th century can hold out is anybody's guess. So far, the apparent immunity of the 9,300 year-round residents, here to a sudden and overwhelming urge for two all-beef patties topped with a special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, and onions on a sesame seed bun, 
has been enough to hold back the McDonald's Corporation, which lost a bid to open its 5,110th restaurant in what is now a health food store herb. Similar anti-modernist sentiments have in the past fought off traffic lights, neon signs, billboards, parking lots, and parking meters, highways, shopping centers, and jet airplanes, leaving this island happily adrift somewhere in the mid-1940s. But no one here is convinced that either the big fast food chain or its competitors has been decisively pushed back from a lucrative and untapped market of 800,000 annual summer visitors, at least not by anything as frail and modest as the decision by the local Board of Health to, to deny the restaurant chain a permit for a septic tank. Yeah. And, but to this day, no McDonald's on the island. They actually did pass like a some sort of decree that says like all of these chains will be kept out. I think there's a Dairy Queen, but that was already there. And if you look at like fast food and Martha's Vineyard, there's like not really a lot of options. It's mostly like local mom and pop places. So, I mean, why would you want fast food in Martha's Vineyard anyway? Yeah, you're kind of going there to get away from that. I want fish, damn it. I want squid. I want clams. I want like cod. That's what I want. Yeah, my poor okay. lactose intolerant self would be dying. I'd just be eating clam chowder every day. Mm-hmm. You just oh, sounds like a bad plan. <laughs> yeah, you would. You would. It's worth it. Authentic New England clam chowder. Come on. You would need that permit for the septic tank pretty yes. quickly. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Um, so while this is a really good thing in terms of like preserving the look and feel of a place. It's not necessarily great if you have a massive film crew that's mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So while the Islanders were kind of happy to have the film crew there for a short time, once the once the shoot moves past the two-month mark, tensions really flare. Uh, number one, you're on an island with limited parking and road space to begin with. All of a sudden, all of your roads are taken up. Right. You have nowhere for the tourists to go. All of these trucks, all of these production houses, everything is all the space that the islanders need is all of a sudden taken up. So they're not happy. And there are stories about like the sets getting sabotaged, props getting broken or stolen, gas tanks getting sugar poured in, mm. graffiti with Jaws Go Home sprayed on the sets. <laughs> um, Robert Shaw's cottage gets blasted with a shotgun one night, mm. not because of the movie per se. It was just like one of the locals went out and got shit-faced and just took a shot at the door. And then the next day Classic. woke up. <laughs> yeah, it was like, I did what? And then just kind of got like a small fine and a slap on the wrist to not do that again. Um, Shaw's then wife like immediately left the set. It's like, I'm going back to Broadway. Uh, Murray Hamilton, who plays the beloved Mayor Vaughn, got absolutely blitzed one night. And while he was like stumbling back to the hotel, he saw a small dog that he wanted to pet. And that dog had a nice white stripe running down its back and happened to also be a skunk. (laughs) Not realizing that the skunk had sprayed him, 
Hamilton goes back to his hotel and is like, what is that smell in this room? How so drunk he's like, do you have to be to not realize you got sprayed by a skunk? Jesus. You, you have to be 1970s actor level of drunk. Apparently. To I was like, I've never been that be. drunk before. No. Oh um, he opens all the windows. He takes all these showers. He's like, it still stinks in here. He's like, I can't sleep in this room. So he stumbles down to the lobby in his underwear, pulls a blanket off the couch there and just falls asleep, like drunk in the lobby of this hotel until the staff like gently wake him up in the morning and are like, "Uh, this is not good for you to be here hungover and uh, mostly naked on the (laughs) hotel lobby couch. Um, Yeah. So these are just like some of the fun stories of behind the scenes filming begins on may 2nd the first shot is brody uh, the deputy and tom i'm an islander cassidy finding chrissy's chewed up remains on the beach supposed to wrap by the end of june spielberg is like we'll probably be about three or five days behind schedule by the time like we're ready to shoot on the water and we do everything on land and he's not off the mark on that but like once they have to shoot on the water, it does not wrap up on day 59. It wraps up on day 159, nearly <laughs> six months later. My the budget, yeah, it is a nightmare for the reasons we talked about, like shooting on the water mm-hmm. and the shark not working. Um, the budget balloons from three and a half to nine million bucks, which leads Spielberg to go out of pocket for one scene we'll talk about later on. Robert Shaw is freaking out because his visa only allowed him to work in the U.S. for so many days before the IRS would take out huge chunks of money from his from his salary at that point. And he would actually fly out of the United States to Canada after shooting some nights just so the hours wouldn't count against his the IRS penalty, although eventually it catches up to him. I think universal did him a solid and like they ended up like boosting his salary or paying the okay. IRS anything uh, above and beyond at that point. I would hope so. That yeah. really stinks. Yeah. I mean, they were all like, we have other jobs we want to do. Like we, mm-hmm. it's a nightmare. And I think what helped was like Spielberg never lost his cool. Like he basically, everybody looked to him, this like 26, 27 year old guy shooting this massive movie and everything is going awful and Spielberg just being very honest and upfront with his crew, but also like never losing his cool. Be like, no, we're going to get it done Uh, and keeping all that inner turmoil in. And I think the other thing that helped was having like Verna Fields there kind of doing some editing as they were shooting because they could go back and play it back and be like, okay, we have an actual movie here. Mm -hmm. Uh, They didn't have to guess what they had. All right. Who wants to talk Bruce the shark? Ariel, you're a sea expert as we've discovered. (laughs) I'm horrified of the depths of the sea. What stories do we know? No, we shouldn't, shouldn't be there. No business. (laughs) Look, so, we just, just saw this a couple weeks ago, right? Like, let's go explore the Titanic. Titanic, and I don't yeah. want to be grisly. What could but, go wrong? But there are a couple things. Like, A, that dude, like, emails have surfaced with him going like, I know you're telling me this is dangerous, but you're just, like, 
telling me that ah, human life, whatever. He's like, don't get in the way of innovation. It plays like a terminal reading from the game Fallout when you hear it that way. It's like what you would find from a non-playable dead character on an old mm-hmm. terminal. Um, they found remains this week, like human yeah. remains. And does it make me like gruesome that I'm like, I kind of want to see what that looks like. Oh, I totally want to see it. I figured you would just turn into soup at that depth. That's what I would think. I thought you would be chum. I literally mm-hmm. don't know how you would have anything that would be identifiable. at that. You point. know what survived? That controller. <laughs> The Bluetooth controller still works. You can still play Zelda yeah. with it. Wow. I That's do amazing. not want to see the remains, but you guys know I'm so squeamish about I real know. stuff. I usually am. I think because that is such a rare thing to happen. It's really rare. That removed. I have like a morbid yes. curiosity. Totally. Plus they and were no billionaires. They were billionaires. Just, so yeah. yeah. Shouldn't have been down there. All right. No, yeah. No business. So nobody has the, any business being in the ocean. That's ugh. No. Too scary. The the stories of Bruce the shark not working are epic and many. I'm going to turn things over if you'd like for a minute to see if y'all want to share what y'all know about this damn shark not working. Well, um, two things I thought of. Number one, it's a great um actually to tell people the name of the shark. So that we can all deploy that in our lives. When people call the shark jaws, we can um actually them and tell them it's Bruce. Mm-hmm. And um, Mike, when we were talking about doing this episode, you had challenged me to find a way to tie it into Saw. Excellent. Do it. So I am going to do that right oh, now. Oh, I love it. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> Listeners, it's been over an hour since I brought up Saw. So I'm doing pretty good. Normally it's within the first 20 minutes or so. Um, so one of the things about Jaws is that some of the best horror in it is like what they, you see and what you don't see, you know, like we hardly ever see the shark turns out cause it was like freaking broken all the time mm-hmm. and like choosing not to show us too much of Chrissy's remains. So like a lot of the horror comes from your imagination but that came from mistakes like that wasn't necessarily intentional it was like well we got to shoot this movie and we don't have a shark what are we going to do so the way that that ties into saw is the frantic editing in saw that is so um iconic and really set the style for that decade. Like a lot of the films that came after it used that really frantic editing style and it became a hallmark of the Saw franchise. That happened because of, you know, kind of a mistake too. They didn't have enough footage when they were editing the movie together and they didn't have time to go back and get enough footage. So they tried to make a bunch of action in the editing and then that became a thing. So the way... We don't show the shark and Jaws and tying that into the way Saw editing became popular. These happy accidents. Yep. Very happy I accident. love it. So I excited for Saw 10. Dude, I'm gonna tur- it's my whole personality for the rest of the Dude. year. Fingers crossed for a return to form. I've been talking to the writer a little bit, see if I can talk to him when it comes out. And oh, yeah? You're just going to casually mm-hmm. drop that in there? You're talking yeah, to the writer? Yeah, I am going to casually drop that in there. 
Can you and, please uh, tell him I exist? <laughs> uh, sure. I also found out he wrote Sorority Row and literally yeah. made a conversation. I like didn't even realize it was the same person, which is horrible because I love Sorority Row. How did I not realize that was the writer? And mm-hmm. it was just like, <laughs> by the way, love your script for Sorority Row. It's probably the thing I quote most in my entire life. So I love Sorority Row. Yeah. Same. This so. is the greatest bitches the re- in film. He wrote the remake. It had to be the remake, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. okay. 2009. Yes. Which is a pretty solid remake, especially mm-hmm. you say, okay, yes. got it. I will see Saw 10 and my, we'll see how I feel about it. Like I'm relatively excited. It's kind of. I hated Spiral with a burning passion. Jigsaw was fine, but the rest of them, I mean, that was appointment theater viewing ever since Saw 3 was the first I saw in theaters, but after that, always there. If it's October, it has to be Saw, right? Yeah. Like, that's how the, that's how it's like Wednesday was Prince Spaghetti Day growing up and October was like <laughs> Saw season. So, well, and we'll be covering that series in all of its glory, all of its highs, all of its lows uh, after we finish with Jaws. I will I'm say, getting, I will say ready. I need to, I might need to come back for uh, Saw 3. All right. Okay. I'll pencil you in doing guest booking on the fly right now i wrote clayton three saw three so it's kind of like you're playing <laughs> a game furious like you're playing a game of street <laughs> hockey or, or right now um so production designer joe alves who would direct jaws 3d he designed the concept of the shark and he kept going to like special effects companies saying, can you make this? And they kept telling him, no, you're crazy. So he recruited Bob Matty to come out of retirement to make the shark come to life. Matty had been like an FX guru for Disney. He had designed like the giant beast in uh, 20,000 leagues under the sea. Most famously, he's like, oh, yeah, we can totally make this work. Uh, There are three sharks, one that has an open left, one that is open on the right, and then one that is fully encased. And how they work is essentially these mini oil rigs and hydraulic machines are set on the ocean floor about 35 feet below. Part of the reason why Martha's Vineyard was chosen was it was the right depth and order for these machines. Um, it would these these rigs would allow the shark to move about seventy feet by thirty feet. It would allow them to like rise up, to dip, to go, to wag its fin from side to side. <laughs> Those structures on their own weighed more than two tons. In the rush to get the sharks completed, because again they're in pre-production in February and they want this thing wrapped by June. In the rush to get everything completed, nobody thought, hey, we should test these things out in like salt water in order to give them the stamp of approval. They have been tested in, I think, just regular old, like the tanks they would use at like MGM Studios and such. And wouldn't you know it, the salt water of the Atlantic is a lot heavier. It wreaked havocs on the shark. The structure that was meant to hold a mechanical shark, that giant a rig that I mentioned on day one, when they move it into the ocean and you have Zanuck and Brown going, can we come out and see it? Can we come out and see it? Uh, it tips over. 
Like if somebody, <laughs> it, it, it just tips over. It takes like a ton of folks to like get that thing set back up and re-put it in place. Um, Bruce itself, the shark Bruce, named after Spielberg's lawyer, I believe. Um, <laughs> it functions like one out of maybe every three times it needed to. Therefore, they're losing days of shooting because of it. Cosmetically, the shark is also a nightmare. They would have to bring it back, like touch up all the paint. The teeth don't look right. It looks too shiny under the sun. The skin texture is all wrong. Basically, caring for Bruce the Sharks became like a 24-7 operation between getting the rig in the water, setting it down, getting the shark put on, getting the shark to move, getting the shark out of the water, touching the shark up, moving the rig, all of this became like a 24-7 operation for the crew. So you had people working on that around the clock. So because the shark isn't working, like Aryu said, Spielberg is like, all right, less is going to be more in this case. So famously, you don't see a lot of the shark in Jaws. What you do see is some great white footage filmed by Ron and Valerie Taylor. They were shark specialists that had made uh, film the documentary Blue White, Blue Water, White Death. And because the sharks they're filming in Australia is like a second unit team, because they're only about 13 feet compared to the 25-foot model, uh, they decide we'll use a little person as a stand-in for Richard Dreyfus. So enter into the picture four-foot, nine-inch Carl Rizzo, who impressed Spielberg because he left the scene of an automobile accident bleeding to get to his audition. And Spielberg's like, this guy seems pretty brave. Let's put him in the movie. Carl Rizzo was not a scuba diver. He might have told them he was, but he was not. The first time they put Actors. Rizzo in the cage. Yeah. Well, here's the fun thing. They give him half the oxygen at first, figuring he's <laughs> half the size of a regular person. <laughs> That's how that works. I can't. Sure. <laughs> I can't with this. Maybe I was, you know, that when I bought it 40 minutes ago, I said people were smarter in the 70s. I'm going to retract that <laughs> statement right now. Oh, my okay? God. So he's running out of there. He gets scared because he sees all these sharks like swimming around and he's like, fuck this noise, pulls on the thing to say, take him up. It gets stuck. So he's running out of air. They finally get him out in time and like really in the nick of time for the next dive down. He's like, I don't want to go in the cage. Like The cage is in the water. And they're like, Carl, you got to get back in the cage. He's like, I would like to not do that. You're not giving me enough air to breathe. And I'm a very scared little person. <laughs> As they're arguing, a shark gets its snout caught in the cage and rips the thing to shreds. Like it starts thrashing about. You actually see some footage of this in the final movie. Like when you see a shark tearing apart the cage, that's this. There's like footage of the shark above the water, like wailing its like dorsal, its fin into the boat. It hits Rizzo at one point, like right in the face. Um, yeah, it fucks things up. It tears that cage to shreds and then pieces out and like just floats off like nothing had happened once it's free. And Rizzo is like, fuck this noise. I am not getting in the cage after this, which yeah, after who that. can blame him? Fair who point. can blame him? Okay. Uh, back in the vineyard, shooting is finally about to wrap up. 
and the last shot is going to be the shark exploding. The Spielberg has been out there for six months. He's going crazy. Seven months counting pre-production. Everyone's excited. They're ready to go home. Let's blow this thing up when, guess what? The shark doesn't work again. The light is fading. Spielberg has a flight. To, he has a ferry to catch and then a flight to, uh, from Boston the next day. He's very suspicious. The crew, when he says that's a wrap, they're going to throw him in the ocean. Like he had gotten word that was what they're going to do. And he was like, I don't know if they were going to like bounce me off the boat first. And then like, he was very nervous. So he was like, all right, you get uh, looks at Joe Alf. He's like, you can shoot this tomorrow. I'm out of here. Jumps on a speedboat and pieces out. Gets the ferry back to Boston, gets into his hotel room, proceeds to have like a massive panic attack. Like, absolutely massive panic attack. Like, can't breathe, heart is pounding, sweating. He calls Dreyfus at the bar. Dreyfus comes and, like, consoles him, kind of talks him through it. Spielberg says for months he would have, like, nightmares about filming this movie. He said he would see the shark, like, everywhere. Um, On the flight home the next day, Dreyfus turns to Spielberg. He's like, hey, by the way, like, how did that last shot go with, like, the shark exploding? And Spielberg just starts giggling and shrugs his shoulders. He's like, I don't know, man. I wasn't there. And, yeah. I did not know that. I did not know that either. That is new information Mm -hmm. for me. Holy shit. And we try to do that. We try to, you know, hopefully give folks some new stuff when they... Yeah, it is. He he's talked. Oh, and he, a big reason why he never did a sequel. Uh, he, you know, we'll talk about it when we do Jaws too. But he says like what it really came down to, like he couldn't see himself shooting on the water again. He's like he just couldn't put himself through that. He might have gone mad. Yeah. So the film is cut. It has a preview without the music for the executives, or they all go, eh, it's okay. And Zanuck or Brown are like, for nine million bucks, which back then is a ton of money for a movie, this has to be better than okay. Uh, William Score gets inserted. They do a sneak preview at a, a multiplex in Dallas, and it goes gangbusters. Like, everybody is cheering. The scene where uh, the shark pops up for the first time during the chum throwing, like everybody loses their mind. The studio is like, we've got a hit in our hands. And Spielberg goes, meh, I got one more scare in me. And he didn't like the scene of Ben Gardner's head coming out. He felt he could do better. He's like, can you give me like a few grand to just reshoot this one scene? And the studio's like, you're crazy. Like, we've already spent $9 million. The picture is fine. It's opening in a couple weeks. Like, we're not doing anything. And Spielberg goes out of pocket for about three grand. He shoots the Ben Gardner's head floating out of the bottom of the boat scene uh, in his editor, Vernafield swimming pool in Van Nuys. Like, that's where that is shot. It's not Dreyfus in that scene. It's someone else, I believe. Um, cause I think Dreyfus was, oh, no, sorry. It's Dreyfus is not in the cage later on. It's a stunt double, including one of the stunt doubles was Dick Warlock, uh, of Halloween two fame. So the shape was, went toe to toe with Jaws at one point, which when you think about it, but what, what is Jaws, but the mammal animal version of Michael Myers. Very much so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to talk about 
the release and the legacy of the movie, but that is the sentence, the making of Jaws. And I have talked for a very long time now and feel like I am bogarting the conversation. So Not at all. We... I'm sitting no. here learning like a... I know. Oh, that's why I was like, I need to be on this. And I didn't. I made sure to like... <laughs> Not look at your notes when I was adding my stuff because, like, I, I just wanted to find out information I didn't know about Jaws. Well, so, yeah, these fine. <laughs> and again, that was like very surface level tip. I would go back, read Gottlieb's book in particular, is a really fun read because he's super gracious, but he's also not shy about spilling the tea on people. The quick, quick note like, he talks about there was a lot of tension between Benchley and Spielberg because, like, Spielberg had made some comments that. He says we're taken out of context, like, well, if we can't make this better than the book, then we're really in trouble here. Benchley sees that comment, gives an interview to the Los Angeles Times before he flies out to shoot his scene and says, Spielberg only understands movies, not people. He's going to be remembered as the best second unit director on a picture one day. Mm -hmm. And it's not just that he said that, but he says it in the L.A. Times, which every studio head and producer in Hollywood reads every Sunday morning over like their coffee and bagels, flies out to the vineyard, meets Spielberg, who couldn't be more gracious. He explains his comments. Benchley calls the L.A. Times writer and is like, hey, I want to walk back some of those comments. I'm really sorry. The guy writes the article anyway. And it's like, I guess because Spielberg and Benchley are in the same boat, they have to work together so they don't drown. Like, it's a matter of saving face. They make nice. Benchley's like, whatever. You know, they, they make nice. Before the movie comes out, some other comments Spielberg had made are printed and Spiel, that are not very flattering towards Benchley. And Spielberg feels horrible. He, like gets an apology to Benchley right away. And Benchley writes on this really gracious letter, like forgiving Spielberg, realizing it's a misunderstanding. He's like, you made a terrific picture. Um, it's the kind of thing that if Twitter was around in the 70s, it would be a massive deal for about two days. It would be <laughs> the only story on Twitter. Um, every like pop culture site would write like a million think pieces about it mm -hmm. and whose side are you on? Are you standing Benchley or Spielberg? So it's one of those things where it's become like a stuff of, le I know the Spielberg saying, if we don't make this movie better than the book is, we're in big trouble. Like that's very well known. I think a lot of the other stuff isn't like the apologies mm -hmm. and how they made up like that stuff isn't necessarily as well known. All right. Let's talk about Jaws. Let's talk about this movie and why it means so much. And I'll throw out a question and then I'll sit back for a minute. But as far as opening a movie goes, like Chrissy's death scene, the whole setup on the beach and then her horrific death. Is there anything or any picture that sets up what it's going to be better than this opening scene in Jaws? I mean... It's excellent. I can't think of something that gets right in there. Um, maybe Inglorious Bastards. That's a pretty good, pretty good opening. But yeah, you it's know what? I, my, 
<laughs> you're going to say saw. No, say... <laughs> no, because that doesn't tell you what it is right away. No. Uh, I was going to say House of a Thousand Corpses. <laughs> Very different movie. <laughs> it is. I, I uh, like the comp. <laughs> it's not um, anywhere near the level of masterpiece that Chrissy's death is. I mean, that works perfectly, right? It's scary. It's exciting. It's titillating. It's, you know, everything you need it to be. I will say, though, that House of a Thousand Corpses does a really good job of telling you exactly what kind of movie it's going to be in the first few minutes. And it was the answer that popped into my head. And I always have to bring up something ridiculous on every episode. I, I love think. it. So there you go. Nope, it works. I don't think that's I ridiculous at all. thinking the opening of Star Wars when you have like the little mm. ship and then like mm. the long crawl of that Star Destroyer. And you're like, oh, oh, what is this thing? But it's just like this is such a beautifully filmed opening like between the kids just hanging on the beach and it's so serene and so peaceful and you see these like two very beautiful people uh between chrissy and tommy like they're two like very lovely people tommy being smashed out of his mind unable to get it's it's wickedly funny um chrissy's death is so awful so horrible and it's done she's in a harness and you just have the crew like pulling her back and forth and down and she is naked under there too by the way i think she is very naked under there like when you watch the blu-ray you're like oh this is a pg movie and like that is how they got away with that is well they didn't have 4k at the time true i will say i just i saw this in theaters a couple years ago and it's it it's there (laughs) yeah not necessarily um, as clear as the 4K I watched it on for for the pod, but yeah, there's a mm-hmm. there is a vagina in mm-hmm. your face. Yep, but it's scary as shit. Not the vagina; it's the getting pulled <laughs> apart by. by sorry, that part isn't scary. Um, getting turn. that took a bad turn there. Uh, her like the thrashing about and the water going in and out of her mouth, and at one point. She just yells, it hurts. Yeah. Like, oh, that God. is what gets me. Every time. Mm-hmm. It's up it's... there with... Oh, go ahead. No, you go. Like, I get really upset in movies when someone's being killed or tortured and they start... And they're an adult and start, like, crying for their mom or something. Yeah. That always is just like, ugh. But yeah, Chrissy's death is just... The way she's just being pulled through the water, and sharks aren't something I'm particularly uh, frightened about. I had one incident living in Florida that kind of freaked me out a little bit, but I got in the water oh, like 30 minutes tell. later. Do tell. Um, I cannot say with a hundred percent certainty that it was a shark, but I was out swimming with my friends, and sharks were around a lot, but there weren't really incidents. And something grazed my back that did not feel like you know the typical stuff you would feel in the ocean you know it didn't feel like a fish or seaweed or anything it had that shark skin texture no and it was really cloudy water that day so i couldn't see anything but i mean i noped right out of the water for about 30 minutes and then got back in but i would swear hand on a bible it was a shark i just i didn't see it so i can't how did you convince yourself to go back in only a half hour later there just weren't really shark attacks i like i you would not convince me you would not gun to my head i would say shoot me before i would ever get in fresh water in florida because an mm-hmm. alligator death is just not something i want to uh, experience mm-hmm. but sharks just i don't know it's one of those things when you live there you just don't worry about it 
Um, but yeah, Chrissy. And again, that's in the book, just the way it was describing it and her just like reaching down and her legs just gone and just the, it's just horrifying. I hate it. And her holding on to the buoy and mm-hmm. uh, it's horrifying. Like I'm 34 and I watch a lot of, uh, I laughed my head off in theaters watching Terrifier 2, but in Jaws, Chrissy's death is just rough. Really rough. It's really relatable. Like, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, not being eaten by a shark, but um, (laughs) I really don't like having my head underwater. And um, I have a big family and lived on lakes all the time. And uh, like my cousins would dunk you under the water like they would dunk each other and I was always like not going swimming with you guys because you're gonna dunk me and I don't like that and so like when her head keeps getting pulled under I get really 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 anxious because I'm like I hate that feeling of water in your nose and obviously she's got bigger problems at the moment but it adds (laughs) to the you know because I know how that feels that scene is that much scarier yeah that just like screaming and then having all that salt water go into your mouth. And like you, I think part of the reason this scene works so well is because you don't see anything Clayton, mm-hmm. like you mentioned, like in the book, how it describes like reaching down and feeling this stump where your leg used to be. And because you don't have any bit of gore or any bit of blood, everything is just suggested like this whipped frenzy of her moving around is just letting your imagination do all of the hard work for you, especially because in the moments before the attack, Chrissy was so graceful. Like, I think one of the things like rewatching this movie, the shot that I really love is when she kind of does like a figure four with her legs and then slowly like sinks under the water, like very Mm -hmm. slowly and gracefully. Like this is a person who you could tell was like used to being in the water. It was like very athletic and young and had so much ahead of her. And you would cut between her screaming and Tom just passed out on the beach, completely oblivious to everything that is going on around him. Yeah. And I mean, she doesn't just die immediately. She has time to be terrified and it's just, it's rough. It 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 really unlocks something primal. Mm -hmm. It's just a really, really primal feel fear in that scene. And I mean, she is graceful, not just for what she does in the water. Have you ever tried to, disrobe while you're running down a beach no i cannot say that i have <laughs> i have not tried it because i mean i'm just a klutz anyway so i just that wouldn't work out well but that's a really good point that i never thought about running on sand is hard enough yeah it's running on sand is on very sand hard is hard. and they're yeah. drunk oh. they've mm-hmm. been smoking some weed and just at a dead run stripping mm-hmm. in the dark <laughs> yep all of that and Chrissy is gone. Um, we get a little bit about the town of Amityville. And this is where I think one of the real beautiful things about this movie is how lived in this town feels, how everybody, even though there's not a lot of in-depth moments, there's enough individual moments that make up this composite. I've joked before that there's like an alternative cut of this movie that while the shark attacks are going on, that because most people 
can avoid the shark, the real terror is this group of karate school students that are nine years old <laughs> and they're, they're like karate-ing. breaking everything apart. They're karate right? the fence. Like you could have like the Jaws music and then you just see like hands come out and karate <laughs> chop mailboxes off their posts. Like they're the real villains. At one point, I think you even see like one of the shopkeepers like doing karate chop motions. Um <laughs> The locals are as, like, old-school New England as it gets. Like, they feel like when you think about old New England, these are the people that you think about. And, Mm -hmm. like, one of the the behind-the-scenes things, like, Joe Alves, who was the production designer, when he was on the island, like, location scouting, he would say, everybody would seem super nice. I would talk to one person. They would seem the great, like the greatest guy in the world. And then the next person I would say, talk to would say, you talk to who? That person's a fucking asshole. Like, you don't want to <laughs> talk to them at all. Like, here's like all the horrible things they've done. Like, fuck that guy. And then he'd be like, wow, that's really weird. He would tell the next person, like, just had this really weird interaction. I told so-and-so I talked about this person and he's like, oh, those two, like, they both suck. Like, the third person would, like, tell all the gory details. Like, so it's kind of, like, basically, like, their parents, their parents' parents, like, everybody is worse than them type of deal. It was awesome. Um, you get, like, that walk through the town with, like, there's a, I don't know if it's a parade or is it a trial run for the parade? Like, what's going on here? Yeah, who has a pre-4th of July parade? Maybe it was practice. I don't know. I wondered that myself. I think it was a pre-4th, but did you get the impression that, like, Brody is getting pulled in a million different directions? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very stressful. And on the note, I mean, that you were talking about of how authentic it feels. I mean, it seeps through the screen, and probably because they were mainly locals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it uh, comes through in not uh, these aren't actors way and distracting. It just is a really good sense of space and it really pulls you in and it's like, Oh, this is a real place. These are real people. And it really sucks you into the yeah. drama of the story, mm-hmm. even in the minutia of everything before they get pulled into all the shark drama. I never thought of this until I watched uh, Jaws again for this discussion, but I'm thinking of Jaws as a folk horror. Like, Jaws is a lot of things, right? It's We made the comparison to the shape. It's certainly aquatic horror, political horror. But I was like, oh, it maybe is also folk horror, too, because it's got this focus on the environment and people coming from outside who don't belong there you know quote unquote um you're not from around here type energy and that's when the problems start and the shark is just trying to eat and a lot of times in folk is like the people who are the villains are like they're just trying to do their thing and you got in their way and so i was like oh maybe jaws is a folk horror. i don't know i love that you said that because i made a note for later that I thought of like the Wicker Man in Summer's Isle a little yeah. bit when they're so adamant about keeping the beaches open mm-hmm. because you have like, look, if we don't keep the beaches open, our economy could be wrecked. And how are we going to survive September through 
the end of June the next year. Like we won't be able to do it very much. And in this movie, the town they're seen as like villainous for that. Like Mayor Vaughn is seen as a villain Mm -hmm. for wanting to do that. Whereas in the Wicker Man, because like Captain, I can't think of the guy's name now. I would say Captain Howdy, but I know that's not it. Um, <laughs> we'll because, go with that. Like, it's fine. But because like the police captain is so, I think it might be Neil, because he is so staunch in his like conservative or re- religious views. By the end of the movie, you're like Team Christopher Lee. Like, yeah, burn this asshole alive. Do it mm-hmm. because it'll bring the the island of Summer's Isle back. So you're kind of on their side, whereas. In Jaws, it's not quite that extreme. Like, they're not literally tying Alex Kittner up on a pike and throwing him in the ocean while ringing a dinner bell. But it's kind of the same idea. Like, I'd watch that movie, though. <laughs> oh, my God. I totally would watch that. Totally. Like, we were, I was watching Jaws 2 and, like, kind of joking at the end of it because, like, they have, like, they're all trapped on boats. Like, grab the little kid and just throw him in the water and make a swim for it. Like, that would totally be my play. Uh, you know, like here, hold this, then push them in. You know, they're not doing anything as dramatic as that, but they're kind of like, what are a couple deaths? If it means that, you know, we're going to be able to keep the town alive for another season. Right. Mm -hmm. And we'll definitely get into that. One night. Yeah. Catastrophe. We'll talk a little more about that. When we talk about mayor Vaughn in a little bit more detail here in a little bit, but we get, the scene on the beach with everybody's just chilling. It's a nice June day. Fun fact, when they're shooting this movie, it's freezing in the water. Like one mm-hmm. thing about Cape Cod beaches is they really don't get warm until the 4th of July. And they are shooting these scenes in May and June. Mm-hmm. So that water is like freezing cold. So the extras out there. Um, but you get, again this real sense that Brody is an outsider that doesn't belong. Like you have that one businessman like trying to tell him his business going, look, it's a simple thing. Just do this. And you get bad hat, Harry, Mm -hmm. who's like, we know all about you chief. Um, I just really love this us against you mentality Mm -hmm. that the town seems to have with Brody. So I'm originally from Michigan And Michigan has two peninsulas, an upper peninsula and a lower peninsula, and they're connected by a a really long bridge. And the upper peninsula, everybody calls it the UP. And so people from the upper peninsula are called UPers. And it's a thing, like you can't become a UPer. One does not simply. And, you know, uh, Ellen's friend says to her, you don't become an Islander. You're not born here. You're not an Islander. And that is uh, kind of the vibe of being a Uper. I did have some, I, w- I went to college in the UP, which is why I was thinking of this. Um, and somebody, a, a Uper told me that if I did four winters, I could call myself a trooper. So I wow. can never be a Uper, but I can be a trooper. And so it just reminded me of like places that have a really proud identity and what it means to be from there. And when you start to push against that and you test that, it, if it falls apart quickly, that's like threatening to some part of your identity. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. That's what they cling on to this idea that like we're special, where, I mean, we saw this in real life, or like they don't want a McDonald's on the island because it would change the 
it would change the makeup of the island. It would, it would, let's face it, it would attract a different kind of person to the, the kind of person that goes to McDonald's for dinner. We don't want their kind here on the island. They can take the ferry back to the mainland if they but want their But have they tried Macs. the Diet Coke? Because it's really good. <laughs> what makes the McDonald's sodas in general so much better? They have a contract with Coca-Cola that they can use a different ratio of syrup to soda. Okay. So um, you get a little bit more. It hits you a little bit more with the flavor. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Okay. I worked at McDonald's back in the day, and I didn't know that. Fun fact. Yeah, that is a fun fact. Excellent. I'm going to drop that Drop that at parties. <laughs> Drop in some real knowledge on this episode. <laughs> Excellent. So we get the death of Kittner, which is one of the, again, that famous, probably the shot that Jaws might be best known for, that vertigo effect where you push in and pull out at the same time. Uh, Hitchcock famously used it in vertigo. In this case, you use it to really kind of highlight like how how chief brody like knows he stepped in it mm -hmm. in some ways like oh god like i was wrong to let this go i was wrong to let the town open the beaches up um and you get a glimpse of the shark's tail i believe in this right which again it's so great it's a blink and you missed it you don't quite know what's happened until you see that like gush of blood come up there's a lot of blood there's there a is lot a of lot of blood for a very small person. Yeah. Kittner had a lot of, yeah. I th I don't know if like there was Pippin in there too. Maybe Pippin the dog uh, poor was. Pippin. Yeah. We got all the dogs in this movie. I'm like, you need to put a life jacket on that dog. Mm -hmm. You need to have a little harness on them. I am so nervous for the Meg too. That poor little dog. <laughs> so it is again, just, great use of suggestion where mm -hmm. it's not extremely graphic or gory but like you said that's a lot of blood in a little person and that chaos of getting everybody out of the water and then mrs kittner's reaction to realizing like hers is the only person that hasn't come out and her look of like dawning horror as that is going on is fantastic also Alex's death is so it's very quick as you said but it's very violent it's mm -hmm. it's just a flash but it's horrifying absolutely horrifying I mean I famously love it when they kill children in horror movies but <laughs> it's still just like oh what a way to go awful someone one of our listeners I think it's at sea dog posted a copy he added us on one of his letterbox uh, list right now it's like guess what this list is and it was all like kids who die in horror movies oh my god <laughs> good list strong list great list we're like that i'm like part of me is like thank you for sharing this with me but also like what kind of person do you think i am mike um, i know we greatly disagree on halloween ends how we feel about that but the one thing i do love that that movie does is eating that kid right over the balcony at the beginning over the staircase oh. into the floor i'm like flawless no notes you will you will get no argument from me about that kid getting yeeted over the the side of the thing that is awesome the first 10 15 minutes of halloween ends are perfect i mean i will oh, yeah that's I what i love, love about the movie, movie. 
But yeah, I think that that should have started. This is a show for another day. That should have started the David Gordon Green trilogy. Like introduce Corey at the start of 2018. Yeah. Do exactly that. You know, this looming specter of Michael Myers 40 years later. And then Corey is like a background character for the first two movies. And then focus on him. Or don't because he sucks and we don't need him. It's kind of hot, but yeah, I I gave it a second chance <laughs> very recently. To I was like, okay, I've seen it. I hated it the first time. I'll watch it again now that I know what the movie is and see if I can appreciate it more and watch it with an open mind. And I was, I did it, and I will not get that time back. And I don't intend on ever revisiting it unless I absolutely have to for a podcast or something that I can't get out of. <clears throat> Wait, on ends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're on the same page. I don't really like Halloween. Oh, I ends. thought I could have sworn I had seen you. Uh, like maybe no, else. you're thinking of Halloweenies. They loved Halloween mm. ends. Um, it's <sighs> an area that how, we. How, okay, I Listen, don't know. I don't want to insult know. anybody. I love Halloweenies. I think of I course love that crew. So, um, but I just disagree with them on that movie. So, um, moving on. Um, <laughs> what was it? Oh, and Rothman, who's on that show, hurt me deeply on their latest episode when he said the slasher movie Valentine is terrible. Like that feels like that. I love Valentine. Deeply. I fucking we love ride Valentine. at dawn. No one gets yeah. to say that. Yeah. yeah. We, we I covered that in, for, in February this year and it was yeah. delightful. Talk about I think Scott. I think the Halloween crew would whip our asses. Like Gerber is like six, two. Okay. Like, but you know, I am scrappy. Host versus host, like Gerber's probably taken me out pretty quickly. I'm scrappy and I have really bad depression. So I like, I have no fear of death. So (laughs) you don't see me coming. I have the element of surprise and I have a low center of gravity. So I'll get you with the knees. Mm -hmm. So, Mike, if you need, I'm just saying. Yeah. Okay. It's about equal in terms of the amount of people on the crew. I'm genuinely curious if we had like a 12 man. 10-man tag, like Survivor-style rules, Survival Series-style rules, Halloweenies versus the pod and the pendulum. I mean, is it no holds barred? Can we use weapons? Like, is it false count anywhere? Like, we have to settle all this. And Halloweenies, this is us officially calling you out. Mm -hmm. I feel like we could distract the referees long enough to (laughs) bring some what they call international objects into the picture at this point. We need disenfranchised to referee, right? Because they're kind of neutral in that space. Well, Rachel is part of both crews now. Like, Rachel's now. Yeah, Yeah, maybe Rachel would have to ref. Yeah. I feel like Rachel would want to fight. I could see that. (laughs) I feel like like Rachel, I've not spoken to Rachel about Valentine specifically, but I feel like she's a fan. I feel like I'm super nice oh. to Rachel and wouldn't give her any reason to want to hurt me. I'll have to ask her when we do Jaws 2, like in a couple weeks, because she's part of that episode. Um, Kuiper is a bodybuilder, so Kuiper, if he has some flexibility, could probably kick some ass. I go to the gym, so... I do too, but I still look <laughs> like I do. Oh, man, um, I don't. <laughs> so. I, I forgot that this was about a fight about the movie Valentine. I had fully erased that from my head and thought. Oh, yeah. I did it. That's at the forefront. A, a brawl. <laughs> I was just like, okay, yeah, if we got a fight. It's I, like that scene in Anchorman where. <laughs> yes. No touching of the know? hair or the face. 
in a podcasting fight, we have to leave each other's vocal cords alone. Yeah, yeah. no touching chat. of the throat. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. but we All can, right. you know, in the spirit of Valentine, take hot wax and throw it at the Halloweenies. Okay. okay. Very yeah. good. Wax All those right. bitches. All right, moving along. I guess I'm sorry. Um, we <laughs> the get same. the. Let's talk about the scene where Miss everyone's talking about Mrs. Kittner putting up three grand for the capture of the shark. And I think this is a good place to kind of talk about. Let me scroll down here. Oh no, where is it? Let's go back up. Reexamining Jaws after 2020. Like looking at this movie through the lens of like COVID denialism and lockdowns and this real debate of doing what's best in the interest of public safety versus like doing what's best for the interest of like commerce and the economy. Because you just Google Jaws movie and COVID and there are literally hundreds of think pieces that came out in 2020 because this movie did have like a real, as a matter of fact, it got re-released into drive-ins during the summer of 2020. Mm-hmm. And it was like the number one movie in the country that week. Not that it made like a bazillion dollars because what was open, but it got re-released and people went to go see it again. Um, there's a real examination to be had here what's in the interest of public safety versus like, are we going to actually kill our economy and our ability to live and to function if we do everything possible to keep people safe? So I'll ask Mayor Vaughn played by the lovely Murray Hamilton. Where do we stand on him? And I'm going to take a step back for a minute, but what are your thoughts on the mayor here? Is he the villain of jaws? Is he misunderstood? Ariel, you go you, first on this. What do we, we think of this? this twice in a week, Ariel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, COVID and a... COVID and water horror. <laughs> yes, and he's. I, I will say this before you answer: you have to factor in his very strong sports coat game. Oh, into the that mix. can't be touched. The anchor coats. Oh, can't question that. Um, I don't think he's the villain. Sport coat or no? Um, I actually like. Okay. I don't envy his position at all. And I I don't know if it is an easy answer. Maybe it is. But like, I've never had to be the mayor of a town that relies on summer money. So it's hard to say. Like, if they close the beaches and there is no shark, that's really screwed over the residents of that town. Um he should listen to the fact that there is a shark. And then I don't know what the math is. You know, I don't know where the intersection of how long can we close the beaches for public safety versus not making it through the winter. And that's where I think like, as it relates to COVID, um, it would be nice if like, there could be some assistance to like float the economy while we keep public the public safe. Um, I think that's something that could have been done more during COVID. And I think, you know, had that been an option in Jaws, maybe Jaws wouldn't be a movie at all because they would have just been okay. Um, 
it's obviously as a viewer, we're supposed to go, oh, he should have shut down the beaches. And like, yes, maybe that's true. I'm not saying it's not true. I just, I don't envy his position. And I, I wouldn't want to be the one have to make that decision. Agree completely on every, all of that. That would be a horrible situation to be in. You know, you're answering to all of your constituents and trying to look out for your town and everything. And again, watching the movie at this point, you know, post Jaws when it came out, because I was not alive when this came out. Um, it's very easy to look at the mayor and be like, boo, he's bad. Obviously, he should shut the beaches. But, and we'll touch upon this later, sharks and great whites and stuff, uh, their habits and everything were not known at that time, really, like they are now. You know, we didn't have Shark Week every year. And so they wouldn't have necessarily known that, oh, sharks, if they, you know, get a taste for something, they'll stay in the area. It's a feeding ground. They'll stay. And so you wouldn't think like, oh, they just came here and ate and are going to leave. They'll just move on. And so they wouldn't, without that knowledge, it would be a really hard decision to make. And yeah, it would just, it would be, it would suck to be in that situation. And again, with COVID now we have more knowledge about it, but when it happened, nobody knew anything. Like, how could you make these decisions? And try to get people in line because either either side of that thing as we saw was a huge mess there was a lot of mudslinging and people really showed their ass and we got to find out how people really react in these situations and a lot of movie situations that are similar don't seem as ridiculous anymore as i would have thought previously right right i mean there are to your point there are articles that say like who could have predicted this movie from you know 45 years ago predicted how people are going to react during like a crisis like covid it predicted exactly what you would see from people to your point ariel like it is really hard thinking about the position the mayor is in like what sort of um whose interest that he has to best serve and a couple of things that really stand out during this movie like there's one scene before the town hall where it's just a shopkeeper and his retail agent and he's like you didn't give me anything on my list like don't tell me it's coming in august i need this stuff by the end of june there's not one single thing here on this list for the summer people and when vaughn tries to assuage the crowd of people of the town hall that hey, it's okay, we're only going to close the beaches for one day, even though Brody's like, I didn't agree to that. There's a voice that yells out, one day is like three weeks in the summer. And I just remember working retail and being on commission. There were times of year, like that November through early January stretch during the holiday season, where I would make one-third to 40% of my yearly income in that, like, six or seven week stretch and you'd have to like put some money away and like save to kind of get you through the lean months at that point in feeling that really deeply like i'm going to make all the money i make this year i have to squirrel away and if i lose one day of that i could be screwed come winter time and i felt that like the position he's in pretty deeply at that point but at the same time 
where Vaughn stumbles is that he not only refuses to listen, like once the experts come in and say, Hey, here's what we need to do. But he actively tries to cover up. Like it'd be one thing if he gave the public the crucial information and then allowed them to make the decision or inform the decision. But like Hooper says, like this is clearly not a boating accident when he sees Chrissy, like, you know, this is not a boating accident. And yet you led the public to think this was, and now there are more people that are dead. Like a little boy is dead because of it. Ben Crenshaw is dead because of it. Um, I will say Jaws all takes place over the course of about one week, maybe a couple days longer. So he does react relatively fast. At the end of the day, it takes the, the death of the boater, the guy in the pond, to get him to sign the waiver to hire Quint. So really, like, two more two people die that shouldn't have died if he'd signed that waiver. Uh, the boater and Ben Crenshaw. That's not terrible, I guess. You know, it wasn't like it took tens of people to die before he did the right thing. Yeah, and I mean, even now, if somebody dies from, you know, a shark attack, they're not instinctively going to be like, well, we have to close down, the, close down beaches in perpetuity, maybe for the afternoon or something, but not even a whole day, because typically they're not going to be like, oh, this mm-hmm. is a feeding ground. I'm going to get territorial and right. do my thing. It would just be a kind of a one-off accident. Right. There were also probably middle grounds that people could take like we've gone to the cape and they have shark watchers out and they will post signs like hey uh careful like they like we are on the lookout for sharks in the area we've been called out of the water when like seals have been spotted like all right you got to get out of the water until because like a seal will absolutely fuck you up mm-hmm. uh it will have make no bones about it like they look big round and cuddly but like they raccoons of the ocean <laughs> yeah so um there's like that middle ground where you could have like spotters that are out there. You let people play in like the shallows and then, you know, handle it as you need to handle. So they definitely, there were things you could have done in between. Nobody can step foot on the sand in case the shark grows legs and comes out and, and becomes a sand shark and <laughs> uh, doing nothing. Now there are people like, uh, disgraced British politician Boris Johnson, who just resigned from Parliament, uh, in again in disgrace. His long called Mayor Vaughn a hero, uh, and the real hero of Jaws. And I'm not talking like saying That's a this in stretch. It is. Yeah, I you, won't say go out and call him a villain, but uh, yeah. a hero is a little little fire. Yeah. And Boris Johnson is a deeply unserious man. Uh, and a disgrace so it is just like but this is not just saying it in 2020 when it would have been topical here is a quote from a 2006 speech when he was running for mayor of london in a speech mr vaughn says uh sorry in a speech mr johnson said mr vaughn was the real hero of jaws quote a gigantic fish is eating all your constituents and he decides to keep the beaches open okay In that instance, he was actually wrong. But in principle, we need more politicians like the mayor 
we are often the only obstacle against all the nonsense, which is really a massive conspiracy against the taxpayer. So again, this is a guy who in 2006, 14 years before COVID, is saying the guy who doesn't have any interest in public safety because it's all really a bunch of nonsense, um, let them die on their own, let the bodies pile high. This is the guy that is the real hero of the movie. That is scary that somebody would take that point of view, right? A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah, that just seems like something you say to like get attention. Yeah. And I maybe think that's forced Santa's, Johnson like, have, a, in a have a group chat, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Oh. Yeah, I think you know it's a really good point you made, Mike, about um, if he had given people the information to make an informed decision and make their own choice, that could have been a good middle ground. I do think one of the things we saw during COVID was that. It's hard to manage a public emergency by asking individuals to make, you know, to be in charge of making changes. Like sometimes change has to be, it has to come from the top. So I don't know where that middle ground is in Jaws. And if you're someone who lives on Amity, you can just say, well, I don't have to go in the ocean myself. I just need other people to go in. Like as long as I don't go in, the shark's not going to get me and other people can take that risk if they want. Why would I want to remove the option to do so? Yeah. As we saw during COVID, um, people were very callous about things until it happened to them or their family. Yeah, absolutely. And then they changed their tune very quickly about things. Sometimes they even didn't even do it then. Yes. But (laughs) so in Jaws, you know, I feel like even Mrs. Kittner would have been like, Oh, really blasé about it if she hadn't had her darling little boy get eaten mm-hmm. in but like I, five feet of water on the beach. Yeah. yeah. So we get our introduction to Quint with this great nails on the chalkboard and the little chalk drawing of the shark and the, you know, I'll catch him for three, but kill him for 10. Um, Here's what do we think of Quint and what do we think of and Robert Shaw again not the first choice to play Quint. Uh, they originally wanted Lee Marvin in the role, and Lee Marvin turned it down. Said he would rather actually just go fishing, and then they <laughs> really wanted Sterling Hayden uh, from Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. That's where I best know him from. They were really disappointed they didn't get uh, Hayden. To this day, like Gottlieb has said, like, man, imagine what this film could have been, have been if we got Sterling for this role, which to me, it's shocking because and we'll talk a little bit about Shaw and Scheider and and uh, Dreyfus and the run they went on in the 70s. Shaw, to me, embodies Quint in such a perfect way. Uh, Hayden had to turn down the role because he was in. D, the IRS wouldn't let him do it. Basically, he owed a lot of money, which to me is weird. Like we won't let you work, so you can pay us back. But for whatever reasons, like tax dodging is what kept Hayden out of out of uh, filming Jaws. But what do we think of this introduction to Quint and his character as a whole as we first see him? Quint is just—he's a piece of work. I can't even imagine anybody else playing him. I'm still, well, I can't believe the they said that. I've just been like, wow. After after seeing the movie, they're still like, man, 
what it could have been. I can't imagine, and I don't have a very good imagination, but like I can't imagine anybody else playing Quint. I think he's perfect. He's my favorite part of the film. Mm-hmm. I know. Like I want to punch him in the face because he's just so irritating, but he's perfect. Absolutely I want to buy him a beer and have him tell me a story. That's what I want. I would ride or die for Quint. I was thinking like if you recast Jaws today... It would be like Timothy Chalamet would Chalamet would be Hooper. Yes, Chris <laughs> Chris Hemsworth would be Brody. Okay, and like that's who they would cast, and then maybe Mark Ruffalo if you wanted like a little bit rugged, and then you would get like Josh Brolin to be like Quint. Like just it would be. I have awful. to Google that because I that's not ringing a bell. Josh Brolin. Yeah. Uh, no Country for Old oh. Men. Okay, yes. The old boy remake. Uh, yes. Yeah. So it would be so terrible. It would be so terrible. I'd yeah, watch it, though. I, I'd watch it. I mean, I'll watch anything Kevin Chalamet does, but that's a... We oh, cover a, it. Weird. Yeah, this is one of, I usually... I'm honestly... I'm fine with remakes, because it doesn't take the original movie away, but Jaws is not a movie that I would ever want to see remade. No. Ever, 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 ever. Only if they shoot on the ocean... And have a janky ass broken shark. Will I yeah. watch a remake of this movie? You Don't know it would be no a god awful CGI. CGI monstrosity. Yeah. yeah. I'll go see the Meg if I, you know, I assume the Meg is CGI. I actually don't it's, know. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I will, I, I'm a sucker for bad shark movies. Um, I even watched Ice, Ice Sharks, which is awful. Absolutely awful. Yeah. But they're I mean, just fun. <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, I'd watch it. You know, Sharknado's I, a franchise, Mike. I, I, was I thinking, it is a franchise, Mike. I watched all of those once just for the hell of it, and yeah. they were mildly more entertaining than I expected to be. I was thinking of because I've never watched a Sharknado Me movie. Me either. I was thinking of why don't we do a commentary for Patreon? And we'll do a first time watch and just that'd be hilarious. Do a blind watch of it. We'll see. Our patrons okay. might disagree. They might, but. <laughs> Um, but it's on Shutter right now, so we maybe we have to do that this month in July. Um, Shutter, pay us for the plug. They'll they'll give us nothing. <laughs> no, whenever like Shutter would send out those care packages, like I feel I would see, so left out. I know I would be like, my care package is four thousand PR emails about like a movie they uh-huh. want me to watch. Like yes. that is the care package I get. Yeah, I guess that's what I get for trashing joe bob briggs one day i'm not a fan but moving on we go we get our fourth of july scene no that comes after the fact sorry we get the um boating scene we get our introduction to hooper we get everybody going out our introduction to ben crenshaw and all these folks and again i love this it's amity kind of out of control a little bit you get like the deputy going like these aren't my people i don't know anyone here Mm-hmm. And our, our introduction to little Richard Dreyfus, fresh off of uh, American Graffiti. He had turned down the role of Hooper a few times. And he said, it's a movie I want to watch, but not necessarily make because it'll be too hard. Little did he know. And he said the only reason he took it was he went to see himself in another movie he starred in. I'm drawing a blank at the moment. It was like, oh, my God, this movie is terrible. I'm never going to work again. I need to call my friend Steve and see if he will still cast me as as Hooper at this point. Smart move. Very smart mm-hmm. move. Um, 
I'm not a big fan of Richard Dreyfus the person. He just really if 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 do you know who I am took mm-hmm. like became like a sentient if that thought could take like human embodiment mm-hmm. it feels like richard dreyfus would be the human embodiment like him and kelsey Grammer would be the human embodiment of like yeah. do you know who i am yeah dreyfus is not the most likable person in real life mm-hmm. but he has done some amazing things on the screen mm-hmm. yeah so and i think he was one of the first choices they had so we haven't even talked about let's talk about this casting a little bit right now i think so much of what makes jaws work is how warm and how well these three leads play off each other. And we all have in our notes here, like the warmth of the cast and the feel of it. Let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah. I love the whole Brody family and how sweet they are to each other and how loving and just sort of like how normal they seem. Um, And the way they kind of like tease each other and have inside jokes. And I love the scene where, Hooper comes over for dinner uninvited and brings random wine. And Ellen is like trying to be a good host. And she's mm-hmm. like, oh, I hear you're, you're in sharks. And it's just like this bizarre, unreal situation. And they're trying to stay normal through it. I, I think that's really relatable and sweet. Yeah. Yeah, that whole dinner scene is great, starting with like the – Sean like mimicking his dad and that was so cute yeah and that was something that uh it would happened off camera and Mm -hmm. Roy Scheider saw the kid doing it and went to Spielberg and it says hey uh we should use this so they were able to get him to do it again like right on the spot for the movie because it makes you like Chief Brody is not like a hero in the traditional sense he is just this average dude who hates the water but lives on an island, who was just trying to like fit in and do his job. He doesn't want to be a hero. He doesn't want to get on a boat. He doesn't want to be the guy to have to kill the shark, but he'll do it, I guess, if he has to. He just wants to get by. Yeah, uh, my favorite thing about that scene is just (laughs) Richard Dreyfuss taking the food and just like, anybody eating this? Mm -hmm. Uh, Real power move there. Yep. I love this cast. I think they're all great together. I always notice when I watch an older movie, and I put this in my notes specifically, I miss them casting actors that have interesting faces that don't just look like an Instagram, Snapchat filter, Mm -hmm. flawless. Interesting faces are so much cooler to watch in movies. Yeah. And I wish they did that again. Yeah. I mean, Roy Scheider looks like a piece of old leather. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's just been in the sun for days on end. He is like going through lung darts one after another. He is, he just looks weathered. I mean, Back there's when no you saw people smoke in movies. <laughs> oh my God. Like he smokes so much. And in Jaws 2, it actually becomes like a point made up in the movie. Like that's your third one this morning. Like it had, that's how much like Roy Scheider is like, pulling on the cancer sticks in these movies. Like every scene, he's got a butt in his mouth. I always wonder, I'm like, are these actors smokers? And they just are like, this needs to be worked into my character, which I mean, I'm a smoker. I would, I would need that. The thought of being on set for 12 hours, not being mm-hmm. able to have a cigarette. I would, I would cry, <laughs> but it's, it's just fun. I 
think they're all really well cast. Their chemistry is just amazing with each other yeah. for good or ill. It just, just it the, works. And it's, they're funny. I mean, they're surprisingly funny. You mentioned the yeah. scene, like pulling the steak. I just think of like him pouring the red wine. Like, you're going to let that Into breathe. The, He's like, nope. <laughs> Into just, the giant glass. And then he right. pours a normal amount for Ellen and for Hooper. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then when he's on the boat with Hooper a couple scenes later, he has the bottle of white in his hand. It's a mm-hmm. thing I picked up on last watch. Like oh, I didn't he grabbed that. that. He's grabbed that second bottle. Um, I love that Hooper. I love that Brody's. I don't like the water is not necessarily an overdone plot point. You like know, if Ellen they made like, that movie now, they would bang you over the head with that yeah. and have him like this whole, overcoming his fear of the water and everything. It's just mm-hmm. kind of a character detail that mm-hmm. you keep in the back of your mind, but you don't, yeah. you know. In Scheider's delivery of like, when she's like, yeah, you have a thing about the water. What is it? He's like drowning. And that's it. <laughs> just one word. <laughs> yeah. And he just cuts. Like It's a wonderful bit of acting. And I was just kind of going through the run that each of these guys had, like right in the early 70s. So Scheider does The French Connection, Marathon Man, all that jazz, Jaws, and Sorcerer, all back to back to back to back. Like, that is what a fucking run. And he's not the star of necessarily Marathon Man and the French Connection, but like, he is great when he's in those movies. You have that. You have Dreyfus doing American Graffiti, then Jaws, then Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And then that run culminates with winning like the youngest back, best actor winner. Uh, for his performance in The Goodbye Girl. that And then you have Shaw, who does The Sting, The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, and then Jaws. Like, he'd been a great character actor before that, but that is a, a 1970s run that is amazing. Shaw, unfortunately, heavy, heavy, heavy drinker and smoker. Like a guy like that, guy that probably crushed about a case a day at least. Um heavy smoker he's 48 he's the same age as me when jaws is released and you know this is filmed two years before so he's technically younger mm-hmm. like if you told me shaw was 70 years old when he filmed this that. i would have believed it <laughs> totally believe it he would die three years later unfortunately of a heart attack uh was not eaten by a shark but like that is like for these three guys like what a fucking run of yeah. of movies in that short stretch of time there is only one run of movies that is uh, equal to those, maybe even better. And I'm going to go with Denise Richards in the late 90s. Starship Troopers, oh Wild Things, The World's Not Enough, Drop Dead Gorgeous, and, you know, let's throw in Valentine the next year for good Clayton. measure. Clayton. But... <laughs> Clayton. Okay. I think that is the gayest thing that was ever said in our show. So congratulations. I love you for that. <laughs> I think about that film streak all the time. All the time. Kind of love you for that. Um, I won't argue with you here. You didn't throw Valentine into that. Mix, I, I added it on as a little cherry at the end. But Okay. Cause I, I think say your she's... brain had already shut off, Mike. <laughs> okay. I missed it. My bad. I think talking about Denise Richards having the greatest acting film streak, you know? <laughs> yeah. This is Can't argue God with love that. you. 
<laughs> I hope our listeners are enjoying this episode. I think so. Um, <laughs> of course they are. Why would why would you be two hours in and being like, I fucking hate this? Right. Assholes. I, know, um, I love like, when I be... see a podcast with a long run time. Yeah. I'm like, they had something to say. This will be great. Uh-huh. Might take yeah. me a few days to get through it. And mm-hmm. I'm going to love every minute of it. Um. Oh, the doc scene with with the doc scene with Hooper again, wickedly funny. The the Hooper like, hey, these guys are all gonna die, and then later yeah. on, the, <laughs> the see these guys and like William. And we're gonna talk about William's score in more depth later, but his music is so boisterous and fun. As so you have all these like craggly old dudes that are. Basically, like, totally inept. Like, they're dropping depth charges. They're throwing dynamite. <laughs> they're all on top of one another, dropping blasting sticks. You got you got Ben Crenshaw. Oh, you sons of bitches, get out of the way. You're going to crash on the... And then once they catch the shark, and the shark, by the way, this was a real shark mm-hmm. that they had on display. They had it flown up from Florida. It had been Apparently dead. It smelled very bad. For days, three days Ugh. at least. They say that its guts were kind of like coming out of the mouth. Like you could see it like decomposing. The Gross. smell was insane. Um, because they, they, the shark catchers they had gotten were like, oh, yeah, we'll get you a shark. And then they went out and never did anything. So, And then the shark they caught... The guys were like, we actually want more money than than you promised us since it's going to be in a movie. It was not fun getting that tiger shark up to set. Uh, it's you, To your point, Clayton, yeah, it smelled like a basically a five-day-old dead fish that was out of the water. Mm-hmm. I didn't know the shark was killed just for the movie. That bums me out. Yeah. Yeah. They, I think there's this, like, the crew would catch a lot of sharks when they were had nothing to do on the water and they would it's like their form of torture because they were getting tortured by Bruce the shark not working again the 70s not the greatest when it yeah. comes to comes to that sort of thing um the guy who gives the awa when that like <laughs> lived off that forever like sold t-shirts with his face going awa to like vacationers on the vineyard a very he was a local fisherman with the very unfortunate name of Dick Young like that is just not the <laughs> best name to have but he he said in one of the documentaries I watch, he's like, there was a guy that would literally just follow me around going, awa every time he would see me. And it just drove him absolutely up the wall. That's who you need Mrs. Kittner to slap. It's like that guy yeah. following around. Well, that'd be so irritating. Kim. But again, like, it's almost like jubilant, right? This is scene of elation. Everyone's happy. Mm-hmm. They're taking this picture. And then you get Mrs. Kittner in... What I'm assuming is her dad, because that dude looks old. Um, is she right to slap Brody? Is it Brody's fault that the beaches were open? I don't think it's his fault at all, but I don't think her slap is misplaced. Clearly, the situation was mishandled somewhere, mm-hmm. and she's a grieving mother. I feel like if she felt the blame was somewhere, I mean, it's not like she shot him. She just slapped him. I also yeah, greatly appreciate her incredibly dramatic uh, outfit, complete with black mm-hmm. veil. Yes. 
Yeah. Do you think she had all that at home, or did she go shopping? I don't know. Like, where do you just get that? I mean, that's not something you would have at your... Briefs You can't open that store in the vineyard, though. It's a chain store. I I know. I'm like, I I don't know where she would have gotten this. I mean, who has a black veil just lying around? I mean, Hmm. it was the 70s, I guess, you know. Yeah, maybe maybe that was more of a thing. I (laughs) won't lie. I have given not a number that is greater than zero amount of thought to like does the suit the black suit i have still fit because i have relatives that are getting older and i'm like so i you know it's one of those things where like you probably should always have like a good suit and a good funeral outfit lying around listeners that's your advice get on you get (laughs) on that find a find a black veil i guess yeah, I would feel like somebody would lend it to her too. Like you have yeah, to. I mean, that's true. These are people that live there year round. They don't leave the island. She's a little bit older as well. I'm sure she has seen more than her share of losses. Like I said, that guy might be her dad. I don't see her mom in the background. So, you right. know. And she, I mean, again, it's hard to judge people's ages, and I'm very bad at it. But I'm like, I feel like she had Alex near the end of her childbearing years. And she was 19 little... when she made this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Man, the 70s were a different time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, she probably she... can't just go pop out another kid. Hold on. And she seems like a single mom. I'm going gonna... to do a little bit of back of the postcard math right now. She was 97 when she passed in 2020. So you take, so minus 40 years she was 52 when she made this movie and alex okay. and alex yeah. is supposed to be what maybe 10, 10 let's be generous yeah yeah 10 at most so. so she's a little yeah but people age like to your point people definitely aged mm-hmm. a bit differently living out on all that salt water the sunshine all of that everybody you know, probably, smoked uh everybody smoked People didn't use sunscreen religiously like now. No. You weren't getting photographed everywhere like now, so you didn't really care. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Photos were practically, you know, barely in color at this point. I feel feel like we're heading down a dangerous path where we're going to get like a one-star review for like ageism in a minute. And look, I I I have more days behind me and then ahead of me at this point probably so let's move on and talk about Jeez. the fourth of sorry we got dark here <laughs> dark went a little bit little 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 quinty on everybody here um <laughs> let's talk this fourth of july scene again it's nobody's in the water and do you really need to be in the water i mean like all the people are there you're getting their money they're just not swimming that's a good point yeah, I don't about, think you need like, to be in the water. It depends on the yeah. it depends on the temperature, I guess, of the day, and it doesn't look like they're all dying of heat stroke on that beach. So, mm-hmm. could be like a doubling down, proving our point thing. Mm-hmm. And you notice who's not dressed to go in the water is one Mary Mayor Larry Vaughn, who nope. is oh, I'd go swimming, but I don't want to ruin this like awesome sports coat. Yeah, rocking on the beach uh, while he's giving speech. Like Amity, as you know, means friendship, which is 
<laughs> Love it. Which I did not know that actually until Jaws. So I learned a little bit watching this movie. Uh, Peter Benchley is the news reporter that is giving a, 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 a dark cloud has descended in the shape of a shark. That is some <laughs> awesome writing right there. That is some good good dialogue and he definitely fills out that suit like young peter benchley could get it he's a handsome yeah. dude uh speaking of suits I'm, do you think the mayor if he had gone in the water would he have just worn like swimming trunks and a sports coat or do you think he oh would have taken God. it off i think he would have taken it off but i think the swimming trunks would match the sports coat uh, oh they yeah. have to yeah yeah little anchors i think so God, I would I would give a lot of money for a sports coat that looked like that. I would I would wear the shit out of They're that. amazing. And back yeah. in style, so, you know. Yeah, I would totally wear that. Um what I love here, we'll talk again about the music later on. This is the absence of music. Like you have mm-hmm. this fake out scene in the in the ocean where everyone is splashing about and you think the shark is going to appear. You see the fin but what you don't hear is John Williams' music because this movie is not going to cheat you. It is not going to give you this, this um, whatchamacallit. Like a it's, fake scare. Yeah, it's a fake scare. No, it's going to play by its rules. So you have the, the chaos that erupts, and I think it's so well done where you only have about 50, I think 50 to 80 extras, but it feels much, much larger. Um, there's the woman who is holding her child screaming. And from what I have read, Spielberg like offered her not a small amount of money to drop the kid, which she refused to do. He's like, hey, what if you what if you drop the kid when everyone's running out? And she was like, this is my child. Certainly not. She's already <laughs> scared enough with all the chaos going on. Um, but then you have like the first appearance of Bruce in earnest in that little in the pond scene and that is like again it's horrifying like it's so quick i think that's what is amazing about so many of the deaths in this movie they're so fast like alex's death is so fast this guy's death super quick quint we'll talk about later on you almost don't have time to process what's going on before it's already over and you just have that chunk of leg dropping to the ocean floor to clue you in like this is what's happened right now which is one of the reasons i'm not as worried about shark attacks because if it happens by the time you realize it's happening it's over most of the time okay fair enough fair point it is scary to witness Mm -hmm. because it very much i mean it's not quite blink and you miss it Mm -hmm. but it's very quick yeah. Well, I think that was the critical thing there was having so many of the beachgoers like see the shark fin pop up on mm-hmm. the out of the water. So they know what's happening at that point. Like that's where the tide turns here and you get Brody like gets the mayor to sign the order. And this is where the mayor kind of redeems himself a little bit. Like to your point, Clayton, you said like sometimes you don't really change course until you see it affect people you love. Mm-hmm. Um, what you have here is the mayor going, my kids are on there as well. Like they were the, they were on the, in the water as well. They were on the beach as well. And he's truly shook. Like he is really, it's a great performance by Hamilton here. Uh, he is truly, truly shook. 
I want to ask, and I had this in my notes earlier, and I forgot to bring it up, because we're getting into the second half of this movie. Spielberg draws like a lot of inspiration from Hitchcock in here, in that like you don't show a lot. It's more about suspense. You have the music giving the signal of like what's going on. It feels to me like he's borrowing a lot from the structure of Psycho and the structure of the birds, in that like Psycho feels like two movies to me. Everything that happens until the end of the shower scene and then everything after it. Yeah. Which is less which mm-hmm. is much less interesting than the first half. Yeah. And then the birds a few years later, the first third of that movie feels like a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like a horror movie at all. And then it all of a sudden, like very quickly becomes a horror movie, a completely different picture. The first half of Jaws is not about the shark. The first half of Jaws is this real man versus man feel to it. It's really about Brody trying to buck the system that is in place that is going to prevent him from doing what he needs to do to keep people safe. And then the second half is man versus nature. Now it's man Mm -hmm. versus the beast. And it's very, very clearly divided. That's a really good point. I never thought mm-hmm. of it that way, but that is I love true. movies that do that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and all three of those. Purposeful. Jaws, Psycho, and The Birds I've gotten to see in theaters, mm-hmm. so that's fun. That is cool. That is very fun. I've only seen Jaws in theaters. Um, I To the point where I wonder if Hitchcock is on set and Spielberg has him in an, <laughs> a chicken wing. He's actually directing Spielberg's making him direct. Like, you're going to sit on this ocean with me in your black suit and black socks. Yeah. You dirty little pervert. And just like Spielberg making him stay. I mean, no blondes were tortured in the making of Jaws. So (laughs) Hitchcock probably wasn't involved. (laughs) Well, listener in front of the show, Rebecca McCallum, just heard that bit. And is like, how dare you, sir? How dare you besmirch? The good name of Sir Alfred. Was Alfred Hitchcock a sir? Did he ever get knighted? Uh, I, I don't know. I feel like he's a sir. Like I would, oh, I would, fine. I would throw that out confidently. You know, someone message Rebecca. She would definitely, she'll know. definitely, she'll know. definitely know that. Um, anyway, all right. So we have the scene in Quint's shack. We have the whole, you know, Quint uh, taking Dreyfus by the hands and saying like. These are city hands, been counting money all your life, you know? I feel this is the part you're much too nice to be, Quint Ari. Well, yeah, that might be true. You're far too... I just like his energy. He does bring a good energy to the proceedings. Um, He loses a little respect, I feel, for, like, Brody when Brody won't down Mm -hmm. the shot. Like, you see his face. You see his whole demeanor change. And he gets even madder when... Hooper downs it like nothing. When Brody's like, don't drink that, and Hooper just downs it right away. Mm-hmm. You can see him kind of pissed that this is something, okay, maybe we're not as different as we think. Like Quint really sees himself different from like these college boys, these city boys. Like, what do they know? He has no respect for the technology. Mm-hmm. I will say for all of like Hooper's technology, like that boat he goes on to find the feeding area. Ben Crenshaw found it as well, just being an old salt. Yep. Right? Just found the same thing. And that best jump scare in the movie with Crenshaw's head coming out. Uh, and I guess in the book, 
I guess it's a whole thing. He had a heart attack when he saw how big the shark was, went overboard, and then got eaten. That jump scare is up there with Exorcist 3 for a jump scare I know Mm -hmm. is coming and will still get me every time. I have not seen Exorcist 3, but I've heard so much about whatever jump scare happens in Exorcist 3. I feel like I just need to watch it to experience that moment. You do need to watch it. It's one of the best, and Spielberg says the problem with it is it's a perfect jump scare. The problem, he said, is like the moment later on when Bruce pops his head out of the ocean, that had been the biggest shriek in the theater until that jump scare was inserted in with the head. And he said, the problem is once I did that, the audience no longer trusted me. They were on Mm -hmm. the lookout every frame and every second. What is he going to do to me next? Hmm. I don't think that's a bad thing for a horror movie. Keep you on the edge of your seat. Yeah. So there were a lot of people the other day arguing over whether Jaws was actually a horror movie. And I'm like, this is a hundred percent a horror movie. I don't even have time for that. Don't even no. Oh, I do. That. We're too. I, I, bad I, takes. I do. Um, I'll have time. I'll make a, a, a brief moment because there are like I, a show that I love argued that it's really not a horror movie. It's an adventure movie that it's uh, once you get past the first half of the movie, it's not necessarily trying to scare you anymore. Horror movies don't necessarily have to scare you mm-hmm. every minute. Um, horror movies can be fun. They can be adventurous. Like this to me is a mix of like horror and adventure and drama. And I think that, but it is most definitely a horror movie. It's in a lot of movies ways. It's a, it's a, it's a difference between horror and terror. To me, horror are, is about things that shouldn't be. And terror are, is about things that could be. And because they're so awful, they like affect infect you deeply within your soul. So to me, this is a movie about being terrorized because I could see a scenario where I'm in the ocean. And like you said, the sharks come up like very close and you wouldn't even know they're there. And and I'm not a very good swimmer and I am probably delicious. So, yeah. Well, that was a better response than I had, Mike. What was your response? <laughs> My response was, I don't even have time for this. So that okay. was, that was yeah. much more interesting. I thought you were going to add to that response <laughs> no, afterwards. No, no, no. Okay. I'm like, people are going right. to eaten by a shark. That's a horror movie. I'm sorry. Like, yeah. <laughs> right? A 10-year-old boy gets eaten by a shark. So yeah, I, he does. Claim, <laughs> I claim everything is horror. I'm like, mm-hmm. that commercial. You I know, maintain that Coraline is the most horrifying country. film ever made. So. Oh, what is? Yeah. What movie? Coraline. <laughs> I mean, yes, that that's a horror. Oh, that's a sure. beautiful. It's a definitely a gateway horror movie for yeah. sure. Definitely, I I would argue that all day. You are a hundred percent right. Okay, so I would say this hunt for the shark. It, it number one when there's a, a cut that I love here, a dissolve that I love. You have that beautiful shot of the orca sailing into the ocean, and it passes through the mouth. The, the jaws basically the shark mm-hmm. teeth and it's beautiful posters have been made of like artistic representations almost as good is as they're sailing out it dissolves to the ocean and the ocean is f- completely red with chum so you have like the boat sailing you go to and, and spielberg was said very specific i don't want a lot of red in this movie like i just want the red to stand out when it's bloody so he, a lot of times he had like costumes changed and color schemes changed because he didn't want a lot of red. He wanted just only to see it when there was blood. 
that dissolve is it sets up like this is what's going to happen to these people like they are going to be just bloody hunks of chum in the ocean and it just does it in a really nice subtle way um but after that this whole chase for the shark this second half of the movie i think it underscores how non-heroic everyone is because Mm -hmm. hooper just wants to take pictures like he doesn't really want to kill the shark so much as like he's an r of it um brody is just wants to be on dry land again Mm -hmm. and good for him for going out there he's like i'll do what i have to do but he's like pissed off that he has to like hurl chum into the ocean more than anything else it's really he has to be the middleman between Quentin Hooper mm-hmm. um, and you get the barrel scenes. What stands out to you in this last, the start of this last act? How is this setting us up for like the final run of this movie? We have to care. I mean, cause I think this is what makes us care about Quint more. Mm-hmm. We already care about Brody and Hooper at this point. And so far Quint has been kind of like curmudgeonly, but you start to, I mean, obviously, especially after the Indianapolis speech, but like even before that, you start to care about these three as a group and like seeing their strengths and weaknesses playing against each other um, makes it feel more real. So I think it sets me up hoping that they all live, even though I know that they won't, you Mm -hmm. know, I'm like, oh, these three guys are all, you know, good guys that I want to spend time with. I hope they don't die and turn into chum. Yeah, it's just, at this point, I just want to, I like hanging out with them. Like, mm-hmm. this movie could be three hours long of them just, like, searching for the shark and not even finding it, and I'm having a great time with them just on the boat. Yeah, and I think what I like about, there are stretches during this, I won't say they're boring, but they're very bored, right? They're just, like, playing cards, throwing fish in the water, it's quiet, they're drinking a beer. It's not an hour each other's or legs. You know, yeah, it's as one does. An, <laughs> it's not an hour of um, nonstop action against a shark. No, it takes its time to be very, very quiet and to get to know them, to set up more of that tension between Hooper and Quint when, you know, Hooper is wrong. He's like, it's not the shark. Why are we even chasing after this thing? And then when even after he knows he's wrong, like Quint points out, it's like it proves that you college boys don't have the education to know when you're wrong. And I love yeah. that. I love this idea of like, I might not have book smarts, but I've got a lot of experience out on this water. Respect that. Also, what I think works really well in this stretch of the film is that, again, a lot of this movie just feels so authentic mm-hmm. to life. And anyone who has ever been fishing knows that it is a lot of tedium with moments of something happening and i think this captures it very well albeit in a more exciting way because it's only half of a movie rather than your entire day Mm -hmm. yeah and i think the idea of keeping them on that boat for a uh, a full day and staying there on the night adds to that sense Mm -hmm. of tedium like they don't even get to go home and they're not that far out I think they're probably like a quarter mile or a half mile out at most, right? So it's not like they're nowhere in the middle. Because like 
when they start swing back during the credits. Yeah, you can by see the land time at the some credits, point. By the time the credits end, it ends with them like kind of mm-hmm. washing them up on shore at mm-hmm. that point. So um, you get the scenes with the barrels, which I guess I could never figure out like what the point of the barrels was watching this until maybe more recently. Like it prevents the shark from staying under because of the buoyancy of the barrels, right? Yeah, they can keep it oh. up to the surface where they yeah. can do something to it and track it rather than it just... yeah. And then they can kind of just like harpoon it to death, I guess. Sure. Okay. I I didn't really think of that. It keeping the shark up. That does make sense, though. I was like, oh, those are for tracking sharks. But I didn't like. Can't stay down, not with three. Uh, Mm -hmm. Also, I mean, just because of all their issues with the shark and everything, it's a really nice visual signifier of like, oh, it's here, even if we're not seeing it, and just this for the audience. Mm -hmm. uh... And that's what. Yeah. Continue. I'm sorry. Continue. Oh no! I was I was gonna ask. Um, I want to say, isn't that the reason they used the barrels was because they couldn't show the shark as much, or was that yeah. always in the script? I felt like I, I heard somewhere that that's why they used that. I think you're right. I think that like pretty early on, when they knew they were not going to get as much of the shark as they wanted to that that became the idea like, oh, well, we could use these barrels and it works as a stand-in for the shark, as does like William's score. Like that also announces God, like that score what's so going good. on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that score as we talk about this scene here. Because I, I, it's not just the iconic like two-note score, but like when they have that scene with the barrels, the music changes and it becomes like what I would call like boys on a, on an adventure music. Like it's really buoyant. Mm-hmm. It's really springy. It's so upbeat. And it feels like the three of these guys are now like little kids that are on an adventure on a weekend afternoon. It doesn't feel like there's any sense of like that danger at all. So to me, like that music is such a great signifier of like what is going on in that moment. And then when the shark dives under the water the music slightly slightly changes and it gets a little bit more downbeat because they've lost the shark yeah the score it's just so it's so good i mean is there a score that is more instantly recognizable than this like in the history of film worldwide i was i was wondering that same thing what are your thoughts because i've I was trying to think about it as well. Um, There are obviously like, again, (laughs) fucking Spielberg, like the Jurassic Park score is very recognizable and stuff. But I would say I think Jaws easily has that. But even as you were saying, outside of, you know, the very, very iconic two note uh, repeating, terrifying suspense Mm -hmm. building thing it's got going on it's just fun it's one of my favorite scores like i would just listen to this on a on an album if i felt so williams you know williams has obviously jaws there is the score for close encounters there's the score for star wars raiders jurassic park the harry potter movies like he is i mean john williams is our mozart he's our beethoven yeah he is like the most recognized the only composer that might come close for film score uh that would be like his peer would be like maybe jerry goldsmith 
but know. I would say I, mean, I would like, even throw like James Horner up there. Like, sure. Um, and somebody else. I'm like, who did the one for or Howard Shore? Yes. Like, <laughs> I was like, I've I would watched say too like, many movies. I'll be watching something yeah. and I don't remember who did the specific score. And I'm like, I feel like this isn't all look. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that's them. Right. But um, I think there's something about like Williams' score, like the movie. Oh, and so, my favorite theme by him is like his theme from Superman. Like, that is my favorite oh, piece of so like good. John Williams' music. But like, the it's not just like the scores, but the movies that he's involved with in are also so iconic. E.T., mm-hmm. we just, we left out E.T. Yeah. So you think about there's just, there's all so of these. many. Right. And part of it is like, these movies would not work nearly as well without John Williams composing. Jaws like did it, like it's famously like Jaws didn't work until mm-hmm. you put the music for it in. And then all of a sudden it became this iconic thing. I think to your point, even- like, is it, like in Psycho, you watch that shower scene without the score. It's a totally different experience. It is. And it's one of those things you don't necessarily think about yeah. a lot because that good score doesn't necessarily call attention to itself. But it does so much to add to the mood of things and how you're supposed to feel. Yeah. And I think Jaws is just, I mean, it's one of the best. Yeah. And I think to your point about is it the most recognizable, what the Jaws score does that others don't necessarily do like i might recognize the star wars theme or the superman theme first but like the jaws theme became this kind of note this kind of um people would like hum it to one another like if you're in a pool with someone Mm -hmm. and you're sneaking up on them you would do the jaws theme to somebody you know that's what you would do uh it, that's where it becomes like so so instantly recognizable. Aria, what are your thoughts on John Williams and his score for Jaws? I mean, what can I possibly say that hasn't already been said? It is perfect. It's um I think <laughs> it I think it was Jack Black in the movie The Holiday who <laughs> this I know this is really random, but <laughs> I don't know. Have you guys seen the movie The Holiday? I have not. I am a gay man. Of course I have seen The Holiday. (laughs) Okay, so this lined up how I thought it would. Um, So Jack Black is explaining to, I don't even, I think Kate Winslet maybe? Yeah. um, About like why the Jaws score matters. And he's like, two notes and you have a villain. Mm-hmm. So I would say like that is exactly how I think of it now. And yeah. I thank Jack Black for that. And mm-hmm. to you, yeah, and that makes so much sense, especially given that the shark is in so little of this movie. Mm-hmm. Whenever Bruce you is such hear, a diva. <laughs> he really is. He only had green. He could not eat swimmers that were in green trunks. They had to be mm-hmm. removed from the yeah. fish tank. Um, it's a deep cut. <laughs> it is a very deep cut. Um much like the bite of a shark would be a deep cut. But yes. whenever you hear those two notes, you know. Mm-hmm. But not only that, how the notes are played, the tempo, the rhythm of those notes. This When it was really slow, it's this kind of lounging feel. The shark is in the area, but he's just kind of cruising. But then it would build up in pace and tempo. It would amp up the fear, and you know that an attack was about to happen. It's really brilliant in where maybe not talking about this movie if Williams doesn't compose this score. But right. Just as much love. To it. 
Yeah. And just as much as that, I love the music he uses for this chase scene with the shark to the degree where I was listening to it. It felt like Williams borrowed elements of that piece of music later on for Star Wars, specifically Mm -hmm. the run to the Death Star and the Death Star exploding. You can hear elements of that, like that, the quick two notes that come from the horn section. And then I think some of the symbols and uh, other kind of like triangles at play feels like he borrowed from part of this part of the Jaws score and reused it again in Star Wars or repurposed it for Star Wars. I feel like that's a thing you see a lot with uh, film composers. They'll have little things and hopefully I'm not just yeah. um, like Braveheart and Titanic have a lot of really similar motifs mm-hmm. watching them. And um, yeah, I love when composers do that again. It's just, it's yeah. different. It's not like they're ripping it. Not like they're ripping themselves off or anything. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. is like, oh, this is a fun thing that works. Let's use it yep. in a different way because it didn't necessarily fit in this movie. And yeah. it's just, it's fun. It's like little Easter eggs. No, it works. It totally works. Speaking of working, we have maybe one of the best scenes of male bonding ever in a movie. Like healthy male bonding as Hooper and Quint kind of put their differences aside and they're trading stories of like, uh, scars and heartache and mm-hmm. a couple little things I love before we even get to the Indianapolis speech is number one, when um, Hooper pulls down his shirt and says, look right here. And Brody just says, you're wearing a sweater because Dreyfus is just so fucking hairy. Um, <laughs> it's a great little bit of humor. Uh-huh. And then as Hooper and Quint are trading scar stories, like Brody, Brody lifts up his shirt, he looks, and then he decides not to say anything. And I think that's like a, an example of like really positive masculinity. Like I'm here, I can just listen. I don't necessarily feel the need to one up and I don't feel like I have anything to add to the conversation. So I'm just going to stay quiet and listen. And I kind of love that. I do too, especially contrasted with the other two in their dick measuring contest that they're having the entire movie mm-hmm. with each other mm-hmm. about who's more manly mm-hmm. and stuff also combined with their incredible sexual tension while they're showing off their scars. I'm like, are they going to, are they going to kiss? Are they going to kiss on the orca? Yep. <laughs> it's just, it's very funny. It's a great scene. And Brody's just he's such a good character. I mean, they're all great characters, mm-hmm. but yeah. I think Brody is Brody's a very so, positive. He's in his head. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very interesting moment. What I love is this scene transitions to the Indianapolis speech is when when Brody points out like what's that on your arm and it's the tattoo that's been removed and in Hooper jokes like let me guess mother Quint is so quiet in that moment and he like very affectionately puts his hand on Hooper's like forearm it's a really affectionate gesture Mm -hmm. and it demonstrates how he's softened towards Hooper to a degree like that's not something that he would have been able to say to Hooper at the start of this scene right and then it transitions to that monologue uh, which was suggested by Sackler then John Milius uh, who was on set for some of it 
wrote the scene. Shaw read it, said, this is nine pages. It'll take 15 minutes to do. Shaw was a award-winning novelist and playwright himself. So he rewrote what Milius had done, kind of condensed it to its essence in about five pages, tries to deliver it, smashed out of his mind, can't do it. And kind of comes back very sheepishly the next day. He's like, give me one more chance at it and nails it on the first take. Uh, wow. Just, and I think this, how, how well does this scene explain the essence of like who Quint is and why he is the way he is? What about this works? Everything. It's one of the best monologues in movie history. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I mean, Ariel, you've got this just up in your bathroom to read. <laughs> I do. So I do. it's a, it's just wonderful. It's a great, I feel like, you know, if you're wanting to audition for something, this is a monologue you just want to do just to do it. Cause I wouldn't you know. attempt it. I couldn't. Oh, I would this. not attempt that in a million years. But you know, if you're a little upstart that thinks you've got it, go for it. <laughs> It tells us everything we need to know about Quint and the meta layer about the USS Indianapolis fits so well into Jaws. I wonder how well, like, I I wonder how much that was intentional or, you know, happy accidents all over the place. Nothing about the Indianapolis is a happy accident. Um, But it Brody doesn't know what the Indianapolis is, and probably a lot of viewers don't the first time they watch Jaws either, I guess, depending on your age and just, like, your situation. Um, So Hooper, in awe, says, you were on the Indianapolis. And Brody's like, what? You know, he kind of, like, has to come around to, are we still joking around? Okay, we're not joking around Mm -hmm. anymore. And it's like, suddenly, everything about Quint is explained very efficiently and i don't think quint would give a 15 minute speech like i think quint Mm-mm. as a character needs to just quickly be like these are the bullet point facts mm-hmm. anyway we delivered the bomb and it's it's a perfect encapsulation of who he is yeah i mean he might go on for 15 minutes rambling and singing sea shanties <laughs> but yeah right. for this that type he of thing do. like it's just very direct to the point absolutely yeah. chilling and uh, yeah and And i don't you know the bombing of hiroshima i'm not gonna try to draw a lot of parallels to that to jaws because i think that that might be offensive to do or something but i do think it's like quint was sent on a mission a deadly mission and no one was there to help because no one knew about the Indianapolis. And then now Quint is a person who's like, I will do this by myself. Like that's his only way he can handle mm-hmm. it. And he was set up. He was set up on the Indianapolis, you know, like the way they were sent out on that mission, no one was there to help them. And so now he's not like very trusting of authority. Yeah. It, I'm just impressed he would me, want to go back out on the water ever. What inform? What does he become after the Indianapolis becomes a mm-hmm. shark hunter? Yeah. He's going to try to take out as many sharks as he can. It's a futile mission. It's um, we just did the Friends of Eddie Coyle for the Patreon episode of the end of that movie. 
uh, Peter Boyle's character gives a speech about a guy who hates pigeons. So he keeps trying to like get rid of all the pigeons in the city. He's like, there's 10 million of them. Like you'll never get rid of all the pigeons. And then they're also making just more baby pigeons every day. It's you're tilting at windmills. You'll never get rid of them all. And it's much to the same thing here. Like no matter how many sharks Quint takes out, no matter how many sets of jaws that he boils, in his workshop back home it's like not even a drop in a bucket it's not Mm -hmm. even a drop in the water of the ocean in terms of like how many he's able to 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 take out it's informed who he's going to be and you see from this point on in the movie quint's decision making becomes less and less sound and i re-watching the movie for this episode was struck with a thought like had quint given any conscious thought to his time waiting after the Indianapolis sank? Had he thought about that in years on a conscious level? Or was that something that he had submerged deep, deep, deep into his subconscious? And now that's come back up to the surface and you see him smash the CB and run his boat. He strands the three of them out in the ocean with no way to communicate to the shore no way of letting people know where they are and no way of safely getting back home because he's essentially, he snapped. Mm-hmm. And he puts them in the same position that mm-hmm. the Indianapolis was in completely yeah. on their own without yeah. help. He's in the same position he was 30 years ago, waiting mm-hmm. for the boat to come adrift at sea surrounded by a shark and no way of letting anyone know they're there. It's a beautiful parallel. Mm-hmm. It really is. There's a. I'm going to bring up a weird, weird comp here. Uh, the film Annihilation, mm-hmm. when they're talking about um, Natalie Portman's husband, did he want to go on this suicide mission? Was he suicidal or whatever? And Jennifer Jason Lee is like, a lot of people aren't necessarily suicidal, but people as a whole are very self-destructive in mm-hmm. choices that they make. And it's just kind of like hard coded in them. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, he just made these very horrible choices that put them in a really rough situation. Like they're lucky any of them survived yeah. just Absolutely. because he was so like focused on this completely unattainable goal of getting rid of sharks mm-hmm. because of what he experienced. And he's just really broken. Also, don't you love watching stuff for podcasts and you just like, suddenly see it in a new way after watching something 75 times yes that's why we do it i mean Mm -hmm. that's why we do the show right Mm -hmm. um yeah i never gave thought and there's also this idea there is pride and economics behind him Mm -hmm. destroying the cb like he's out for that ten thousand dollars yeah and if the coast guard dollars in the 70s that's about probably 40 50 thousand bucks right if the Coast Guard comes, like he can't lay claim to that mm-hmm. anymore. If his boat is destroyed, he can't lay claim. So there's also, again, this idea of putting economic survival ahead of physical survival. It's just a, a, a microcosm of it as opposed to like the island as a whole. And what he's done is he's put these other two in danger. Speaking of danger, on a scale of one to this is the worst idea I've ever heard, Hooper's idea of like, well, let me put me in the cage and let me try to stab the shark in the mouth. How bad is this plan? It's up there. 
It's, it it's up there. It seems bad. Yeah. Put me in, and I will try to stab this giant, giant shark in this mouth, which has a lot of teeth in it, uh, that bite down really hard and really fast. I'm going to mm-hmm. try to, like, stab it with this pole. This seems like a really bad idea. Mm-hmm. Well, that ultimately comes to nothing. He doesn't get it stabbed. They don't use it. It doesn't come back. It's not like mm-hmm. a Chekhov's uh, poison. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. You were saying, Ariel? Well, I just, like, does is he just stabbing it? Or was he putting something in the shark? So there is, like, a poison. Okay. There's, like, this, like, a, a, a cyanide poison or strychnine or a cyanide like poison. Fentanyl, you know? Yeah. And the idea was to kind of like stab it in the mouth and that Mm -hmm. would allow the poison to kind of go through the, because it it would, if it went into the mouth, it would go into the bloodstream quicker and kill the shark relatively quickly. I was just thinking like, seems like the shark would just sort of bounce off of that, but maybe they have the right amount of poison if if they knew what they were doing. I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't seem like the best plan ever. They're just trying stuff. It's like those memes you seem where it's like, Step one, convince people to like do this thing for me. Step two, profit. You're you know, right. It seems yes. like that it's kind of idea. Another thought I had that I should have said a moment ago, but um, the whole thing with Quint and his eventual demise and the choices he made, do you think this is always going to be his end since he had survived what happened with the Indianapolis? I think so. I think he's a very, like, he's the Ahab of the story. He's the one that's chasing the shark. He's the one. That is been like the old man that is like kind of it's been his quest for so many years that this was eventually mm-hmm. it was always faded that this was going to be his end. I don't think I think the minute he steps on that boat, he's for the last he's sealing his fate. And his end is horrific. It yes. is oh, 50, it's awful. I hate it. And I mean, it's, it's so it's great, but <laughs> again, it's so fast. It's like 52 seconds. of I, I timed out like 52 seconds of screen time from the moment the shark. And this is the scene that got uh, Roy Scheider to want to be in the movie. He's like, you're going to have a shark flop on a boat and eat a person. Uh, he ran into Spielberg at a party and said, in, I don't know who's going to play Brody and Spielberg is like me like I will play Charlton Heston wanted the role of Brody and Spielberg is like <laughs> it would have been he could have yelled you damn dirty shark that would have been amazing <laughs> but yeah. he would have been too recognizable like it was really important for Spielberg to have this like every person quality to the and I think you that really comes through here um his death is like that 52 seconds. It's so fast and so chaotic from the moment in that the orca like breaks into half essentially. Mm-hmm. And you get that long slide with nothing to grab onto. He goes out fighting. He goes out trying to stab the thing. But once he's kicking at its teeth and you know what's coming and it's again like in the or in the Indianapolis speech, like Quint says, you know, you could hear their high pitched screaming. Mm-hmm. And the last sound that Quint makes before the shark bites down really hard on him is a high pitched scream. And it's yeah. awful. It's one of the most gruesome and best deaths in horror movie history. Yeah. I love it. 
I was really shocked at the ending of this because I feel like I never noticed pacing on things until I'm watching them for a mm-hmm. podcast. And I was like, there's so much that still needs to happen. There's like seven minutes left. Like, how are they going to wrap this up? And then it just all just happens mm-hmm. right then. And then it's just like credits. I'm yeah. keep forgetting, you know, modern movies take 45 minutes to end something after they wrap up the conflict. Yep. But yeah, those last little events of Jaws go by so quickly. Yeah. My favorite touch from his death specifically isn't from his death, but right after when the shark is coming after Brody and you just see the flesh stuck in Jaws' teeth. Stuck in Bruce's Uh, teeth. Oh, that gets me. The flesh (sighs) in the teeth is Little pieces of quince. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful touch. Mm -hmm. It is. It were and it makes sense, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's gonna get yeah. you're gonna get yeah. stuff stuck in all of those teeth. You have again, not the most sound plan of all time, but in terms of like a movie ending, Brody up on that perch. It's a lean. It, it's a gorgeous shot uh, of so like gorgeous. Brody like horizontal to the ocean. The sh- the shark is working for a change. You see that tank like right within the maws of its mouth. And you get smile, you son of a bitch. The second best line in the movie. We didn't even say like you're gonna need a bigger boat, right? I mean that is yeah, obviously the most iconic, the most iconic line from the movie. Um, but that smile, you son of a bitch, and it uh, it blows up in spectacular fashion. And then gets in their mouths, which bothers me every single time when they're in the water oh. and they're just talking. And I'm just like, oh, that's that's really gross. <laughs> well, I think the real shark would be kind of tasty. Maybe. I mean, People if you shark. like cook it and season it, maybe. Uh, Not if you just. <laughs> I don't know. I love sushi. So I'm like, I'd, I'd try yeah. it raw. But, okay. it, you, you know, know what? In... what do I know? <laughs> and you get Hooper pops back up. And I think Spielberg said we had to keep. Hooper alive. It's what the audience wanted. They wanted like one more cheer before the movie lets out. And I think Hooper unexpectedly coming up, got a big cheer from the audience. And you have that really brief, like Quint and Brody just shakes his head. And it's a great small little moment. Mm -hmm. They paddle back to shore. You're correct to your point, Clay in the credits roll. Mm -hmm. And it's the end of the movie at this point. You don't have this big, like, heroes welcome when they get to town there's not like eight epilogues that come you don't have a stinger at the end of the movie where you realize there's like a baby shark in the water yeah. like, nope do do yeah i like that if this was made now there would be like a whole like cinematic universe of different animals like there'd be a post-credit sequence of like a bear in the woods with like you know what okay, i mean maybe. it would just be <laughs> The animals are going to attack all humans. Like, you would have that now. I mean, that's kind of what Godzilla does, right? Yeah. You get all these different kaiju, but it's amazing. So Yeah, that is true. It is very amazing. Um, before we go, let's talk about the legacy of this movie and how it really changed how movies are made. Um, it's a lot of ways considered like the first real blockbuster or the birth of the modern blockbuster. It's the first movie to cross a hundred million dollars at the box office. Wow. And to put it in context, it's at a time when movies cost $2 a ticket, maybe like $2 and 50 cents at the most. For uh, a ticket. Could you imagine getting to go see a movie for $2? 
Do you yes. happen to, sorry to put you on the spot for this. Do you happen to have the numbers of like what that would be adjusted for inflation? I do not. Let's see. Jaws adjusted for inflation. The film grossed $260 million in its original release. It rep- it would be $1.172 billion. Holy Wow. God. It would be right near the top. It would still be in the top 10. It would be number seven if adjusted for inflation. Uh, Gone with the Wind would be the number one. Mm-hmm. It sold an estimated 128,160,000 tickets. Not too shabby. Them. I think the I think between this and the re-release, it made over 400 million at the box office in its first real run at theaters. So I think a couple things factor into that. Number one, they timed the release for like the paperback hitting all the book of the month clubs. Like this book was massive and it really drummed up interest for the movie. It's the first movie to really do a television blitz. Like there were three stations at the time Universal made the commitment to spending like close to a million dollars on TV ads on the three networks in just like the few days leading up to the movie. And it's not just that they flooded the airwaves, the voiceover in this commercial is by a gentleman, an actor, Percy Rodriguez. He gave that the idea, like it gives us this gravitas and this somberness and this sense of real fear to it. It made you want to go see this movie. And it ends with the line, like if God, it's like God created the devil and gave it Jaws. It's like, fuck if I'm not running out to the theaters to see that movie at this point, right? The poster artwork is created by uh, Roger Castell. You get that iconic artwork of the shark under the water. You have the swimmer coming up and the jaw and jaws coming up under the water. Mm-hmm. It was the same similar themed artwork on the hardcover of the book, but the shark looks like a, like a whale and has really little teeth. It's like a, not really scary. It's like <laughs> a dolphin, if anything. And then for the paperback, Castell creates this iconic image and they allow them to also use it for the movie. So you see that theater, that picture in theater lobbies, like you're going to yeah. this. And it opens on June 20th. It's the first movie to really open wide. It opens in 409 theaters, which was unheard of at the time. At that point, movies would open like in a few cities and then roll out over the coming weeks. They originally secured 600 theaters for Jaws, But Universal Studio Executive Lou Wasserman says, scale it back. Like, let's not, let's cut at least a few hundred theaters out. Let's make it an event. I want people to see lines around the block to get in. Mm -hmm. I want people to have to drive to a different town to go see this movie. He said, I don't want to own the weekend. I want to own the summer, which is what Jaws does. Like, having it come out in June too was a stroke of genius like if this comes out at like christmas probably not the same impact right yeah definitely kim i mean i do love than 14 weeks counter programming but yeah (laughs) yeah more than 14 weeks at number one first movie to cross 100 million at the box office makes 7 million in its first weekend so again that is 
jeez, like 35 million people <laughs> did better than the flash not even adjusted Jaws? for inflation <laughs> yeah oh man it is insane so yeah. so seven million there um first movie to cross a hundred million and it's the number one movie of all time until star wars comes out two years later uh in 1978 it makes its television debut and when it play i think it's like abc's movie of the week when it comes when it's on television it gets a 58 percent share which is what if you took two super bowls and played them on two separate stations now they would get like a 58 percent share or maybe a little bit better but that basically means three out of every five televisions in the country that were turned on were watching jaws when it made Holy its tv debut. it's a phenomenon and we talked about the merchandising it makes Spielberg's career. He can basically do anything he wants. Uh, it makes a star out of out of Richard Dreyfus. It makes a, a star out of John Williams, whose career he had already won an Oscar for his compositions or his arrangements in Fiddler of the Roof. Um, famously, Spielberg does not get nominated. It gets nominated for Best Picture. He doesn't get nominated for Best Director. I would seek out that clip online of him learning he doesn't get nominated. It's him hanging out with Joe Spinelli of Maniac. Uh, it's a great clip where Spielberg is like, I didn't get nominated. This is bullshit. Uh, and he's like, ah, I, I got, I lost out to Fellini. It's, uh, I think the movie that wins Best Picture that year is uh, Milo Forshman for one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Mm. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. You, know, you can understand that. The Academy. <laughs> but you can understand that one. They make such mm-hmm. good choices all the time. <laughs> well, I mean, one flew over the cuckoo's nest is pretty fucking awesome. So I can't. It, really it, is. it is not better than Jaws. I No, it's not. It hasn't had the impact that Jaws has had. Yeah. So. It is the kind of movie that you would think like this is going to win an Oscar. Right? Yeah, it's for right. sure. All right. Any final thoughts? What are our last thoughts on Jaws? I'm just checking my notes. Okay. I mean, I just love how amazing all these different pieces come together to make this a fabulous whole. The script is great. The performances are top notch. The editing is phenomenal. And, I mean, Spielberg just has that little magic touch that he brings to pretty much everything he is involved with. It just works. It's so good. I was, I wouldn't have even had to rewatch this for this podcast if I didn't want to like this movie just lives rent free as they say. Mm -hmm. The only thing we haven't really touched on is what this did to public opinion about sharks. Mm Mm-hmm. Is a little unfortunate, but I mean, that's really the only other thing I had. Yeah. Was... What would you want to say on that? Um, it's just, uh, I don't think art needs to be responsible for everything it does. It's a piece of art. Mm-hmm. It's a story. But in this situation, just everybody being like, oh, sharks are just really malevolent as opposed to just, you know, they're just animals doing their thing and really caused a huge influx of shark hunting and everything that still is not great because people were just 
scared of sharks. And most of the time, sharks aren't going to bother you. And it was just kind of an interesting thing that happened after this movie. And, you know, yeah, I just think it's a weird little footnote in the story of Jaws, the motion picture. Yeah, it is something that Benchley talked about for years afterwards. Yeah, he felt bad about it. Yeah, yeah. because I knew it would have had this impact. I wouldn't have written the book. There's a documentary coming out this month on Shudder. Again, Shudder, pay us for the plug. Um, called Sharksploitation, where it, um, I haven't seen it yet, but it is coming out and it does talk about like the effect of shark movies. I, I think it's going to be about this point. So, yeah, that'll be interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely that. check that out. Excellent. I'll definitely check that out. How about yourself, Ariel? Any final thoughts? No, I don't think so. I, it's like you could talk about this movie forever. There's so much that we haven't talked about, but at some point, you know, you can't just. I mean, what hasn't been said? I know it's like it's just it. We said at the beginning, five stars, no notes. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. we had a lot of notes. We had yeah, we, five well, stars. <laughs> five stars, many pages of notes. Many yes. many pages of notes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's a perfect movie. It yeah. is. And it, it's a blockbuster that doesn't necessarily feel like a blockbuster. It kickstarts yeah. a run for Spielberg. You think of this, Close Encounters, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. Like, that is just an almost unprecedented run mm-hmm. in movies. He, you know, I think he is the perfect blend of like a master filmmaker, someone who deeply loves and appreciates movies and film but also knows how to make an incredible popcorn movie. He knows, like, at the end of the day, he wants to entertain people. He wants people to leave the theater smiling. He is a master at his craft, but he's also a great populist director. It's something that's not easy to do. I mean, M. Night Shyamalan has chased that Mm -hmm. role for years, ever since The Sixth Sense. And he is very open about talking about his affection for Spielberg and saying it's okay to be like a cheeseburger and fries type of director. Like those, he's said that about his own movies. Um, Yet there's something about like Spielberg can make movies that can entertain the population, but can be every bit as deep and moving as like a Scorsese, as a Peter, as a Bogdanovich. This is the first Spielberg movie I've watched since The Fablemans came out. And it's kind of interesting to watch his stuff after seeing that and just kind of getting that insight to who he is and was and grew up. Um, mm-hmm. It's just kind of fascinating. How so? Because that's one of my things to watch this summer. Oh, it's really good. Uh, I have not. I watched it in theaters once, so it's not like super fresh, but just mm-hmm. what he went through as a child and his love of movies and mm-hmm. his pursuit of that and just how excited he was seeing what he could do. Yeah. And it's cool. I would definitely recommend it. It's okay. not everyone's cup of tea, but I think it gives a really cool insight into who he is. Excellent. I, Plus, I definitely. It's, just, it's really beautiful. I mean, it's Spielberg. Yeah, I definitely want to check that out this summer. Well, that's our talk on Jaws. It was a <laughs> no big, big episode. Deal. Yeah, it was a big episode, and 
you know, again, I, I've kind of said this, like this to me is the definition of a one franchise, one movie franchise. Um, mm. The second movie, there's going to be some fun things to talk about in the remaining movies. I don't anticipate, I don't anticipate, it's not like, even the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series, like the first movie is obviously the masterpiece, but there's enough interesting things going on in like all of those sequels where like they're really, really fun to talk about. By the time like Jaws gets to SeaWorld, you're like, all right, I think we can wrap this up here. We can, yeah. I am excited because I've never seen any of the Jaws sequels. And so I'm very excited to go on this journey. Let's see how you feel. I'm excited for you. Let's see how you feel in about a month. We'll see. Okay, we'll see. All right, Clayton, why don't you plug away? Where can listeners find you in your show and what's Uh, coming up? So if you search for Men Who Like Men Who Like Movies, uh, we're on all the podcasting platforms the pods on all the social medias if you just search for men who like men who like movies you'll find it uh if you want to find me on the socials i'm mostly on twitter and letterboxd at just happy to see you number two letter c letter u uh we just had an episode come out on the bay with the lovely ariel herself and there's an episode on killer joe and independence day coming up so yeah excellent ariel how about yourself yeah um well keep an eye on ghouls magazine this month so july the theme for july is body horror so we're gonna get real weird with it over at ghouls and we're gonna do some gnarly stuff so lots of free content coming up there's also Mm -hmm. gonna be some really good member content i'm particularly proud of an article i wrote that i'm not going to mention yet because it's not out yet but that's just a little bit of sizzle and i think Maybe it'll get me my first mean comment on the internet. I don't know. We'll Ooh. see. Yeah. So keep an eye on Google's magazine. I can't imagine me. people being mean to you. You're like the nicest person. <laughs> well, thank you. That is very kind. Um, I feel like this article I wrote might piss some people off. So okay. we'll see. We'll see. Sweet. I'll tell you what it is off mic. Okay. Um, is it like, yeah, student loan forgiveness is for the birds? Is that what it is? <laughs> it, is it is not. Pay is your not. debts. Is that what that is like, going to be? A hard right turn from That would be unexpected. weird. That would, that would be, be super weird. That would be very strange content for ghouls as well. Yeah. Um, and you can follow me on other socials at Ari underscore Hellraiser. And um, I post everything I do on my Twitter. Excellent. All right, you can follow me at Mike underscore Snoonian at Twitter and at on Instagram at Letterbox at Mike Chump Change, all one word. The show, uh, go to our site, podandthependulum.com. That's where all of our back episodes are listed. They're easy to go through. I think we're going to try to work on putting up like a contributors page for all of our co-hosts so you can very easily find their stuff as well. I would like to have that up by the end of July, but definitely check out the site now uh, and follow us over at pod and penned over on Twitter for now. Um, if you like what we've done, here are a couple easy ways to support the show. The free and easy way, wherever you're getting your podcast, make sure you rate us. Okay, if you're on Spotify, give us a five star review. If you're on, if you go to the Pod and the Pendulum site, it'll there's actually a review section. It'll allow you to very easily leave a five star review and then some kind words about why you like the show. When you review the show and rate the show, it allows others to find us. 
I know that there are times like when I am interested in maybe listening to a podcast, I'll read the reviews. And if it sounds like something that's up my alley, I will give that show a listen. So you taking like a couple minutes to do that, especially on Apple Podcasts, where I think we get about two thirds of our, our listens. Uh, you rating us five stars and leaving us a review goes a long way to new listeners finding us. So I would really appreciate that. Another way you can support us, if you like what you've heard today, today, it's 2023, we have a Patreon. We had stopped it for a long time, um, but now we're able to put some content back up there again. So if you go to patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum and become a patron today, we have bonus content up there. In June, we did a bonus episode on the Friends of Eddie Coyle, a great heist movie, which may get repurposed later on for another show that I'm planning on launching at some point. Uh, Ari and I spent almost an hour doing kind of like our own picks, like what we're watching and listening to. It was a really fun conversation. Yes, it was. Um, it was just a, a just a delight. In July, we'll have another like full bonus episode up there. I'm thinking we should maybe do a little like uh, have a few beers and watch Sharknado. Uh, <laughs> that might be a fun little I'm commentary. So in. I'm All very right. in. We'll pick a night and we'll definitely okay. do that. Um, but it allows like, A, I would like to pay all of the people that have like contributed so much to keeping this show going. Like as far as I'm concerned, if I can pay the hosting bill and the recording bill, like everything else, I just want to give to them. So if you can contribute a few bucks a month at the Patreon site, it goes a long way to like purchasing the books and the movies and all the research articles that like we tend to use when we do episodes like Jaws. Like say like I started planning this episode in May, I think is when I wrote my first note for it. And hopefully that came through today that you've enjoyed it. Uh and you can support our efforts by going to patreon.com slash the pot of the pendulum. All right. And there's a lot of different levels, too. Yeah. Like, there's a $2 level yep. that you can do. And yep. I think that that is pretty unique. Like, not mm -hmm. all shows have different ones that you can pick from. So go yeah. at least go look at the different levels that there are. Yeah. yeah, two and five. Tap out at five. I think I might take down the $10. That's an old level. Um, we'll keep it at five. And we might do, like, a tip jar for a buck. I don't know. We'll see. But thank you, Ariel. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um all right. I have talked out for the day. So it is, it's been a really fun episode to do. Uh, we'll be back in, I believe, two weeks with a uh, our next look at Jaws with Jaws 2. We have a fun guest lined up for that episode. Maybe we'll throw a little bonus show in between. Who knows? If you're listening to this on the 4th of July weekend, hope you enjoyed listening to us with a grill fired up. Have a cold one in your hand, and you're keeping safe in the waters. All right. Feels like we needed a bigger podcast for this episode. Yeah. We definitely brought it. <laughs> Smile, you son of a Bye. Bye.